0: In the operational funds box, we will deposit 250,000 American dollars. You take it out, we put more in. I want receipts.
1: genetic patterns and decided to, uh, splice us together. It made it as me and the fly. We hadn't even been properly introduced. My teleporter turned into a gene splicer. Be afraid. Be very afraid.
2: right, Mr. Files. People really should learn
0: to keep their hands to themselves. Here's yours.
1: It's not because of me that we're here now. Hungry. And cold. And hunted. Killer clowns in outer space. Holy shit. The doctor is in. I'm gonna get you fuckers!
0: I love you, Keith. But all I can see right now is food.
2: Sometimes. That is
0: better. Hey, what's going on, son? What's coming off?
2: Your face. Clean off.
0: Be afraid, be very afraid, as we welcome you back to the Halloween Horathon to 2 Dead By Pod, our annual event right here on the Film Effect Podcast, the weekly show that gives you the deepest of dives on a different film each episode in an effort to give it what we call the full film effect treatment. I'm Ed.
2: And I'm Corey.
0: And this is The Fly.
1: I think you're making a mistake. I think you really want to talk to me. Sorry, I have three other interviews to do before this party's over. Yeah, but they're not working on something that will change the world as we know it. They say they are. Yeah, but they're lying. There is a limit, even to the imagination. Human teleportation, molecular decimation, breakdown, and reformation is inherently purging. Where our greatest creations meet our deepest fears. Something went wrong, Seth. When you went through, something went wrong are about to go beyond that limit those weird hairs that were growing out of your back i had them analyzed but they were definitely not human if you saw how scared and angry and desperate he is. i'm sure typhoid mary was a very nice
0: person too when you saw her socially no you're afraid to be destroyed and recreated aren't you you're changing Seth. everything about you is changing oh no
1: What's happening to me? Am I dying? I want to know what's going on. What does the disease want? It wants to turn me into something else. Oh no! A fly got into the transmitter pod with me that first time when I was alone. Don't go back to it. it could be contagious. Oh, I'm afraid. Don't be afraid. No. Be afraid. Be very afraid. <laughs> Help, me. Please.
0: Help me. In David Cronenberg's The Fly, a brilliant but eccentric scientist begins to transform into a giant man-slash-fly hybrid after one of his experiments goes horribly wrong. Man- what a treat this was! I honestly have not sat down and watched this in a good handful of years. And watching this again the other night, man, I'll tell you what. First things first, I want to get out of the way here, right here, right now. Putting my foot in my mouth, I've been saying the Fly Two, the Superior film, for all these years. Fuck no, Superior, no, not quite. I, I'm still a big fan of the yeah. Fly Two, but I'll say this: if I, because I, I thought about it yesterday if I'm going for special effects then I'm going to the fly too if I'm going like the special effects route cause that's more special effects driven this movie has everything it's got the special effects but this is telling you a fucking story and man when we get to the end of this I have got some fucking shit to talk about so uh, yeah uh, this is just uh, uh, simply put an excellent film near perfect I love it so goddamn much. Coy, where are you at on the fly?
2: Uh, I've always loved this movie. This is one of my favorite Cronenberg films, you know, right up there uh, with his best work, like Videodrome and Scanners. Right. Um, Yeah, I've always loved this one. Uh, You know, real quick, I'll say Fly 2 has always been uh, a favorite of mine, too. I remember renting that back in the day. And it's way better than any Fly 2 movie should be. Yes. Considering it's a whole new cast and it's a very. When you listen to the idea of the Fly 2, it sounds very cheap and you're like, oh, it's going to be a cheap sequel just to cash in on the Fly, but it's actually really good. So I'm with you there. Is it as good as the Fly? No, but the Fly 2 is much better than it has any right to be. So I'll throw that out there. But yeah, I love *The Fly*. It just has like the tragedy and the love story and uh, the body horror and uh, you know just what it says about science. It just has so much tied into one. And I mean, you have two all-stars, Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis. I mean, how do you not love a movie where they're your two leads? I mean, two iconic, you know, all-time performers, especially from the '80s and '90s. So yeah, I mean, you just got. Cronenberg, you got two great leads, and just all the parts just go in to make this like awesome movie that you know is an hour and a half. Like I say every time, it gets in and gets out, uh, and I just enjoyed it so much. I've always been a huge fan. I I remember seeing this at a very young age, and it left an impression on me, which you know obviously we'll get into soon. But yeah, I, I've always loved this movie.
0: Yeah, Gina Davis and Jeff Goldblum. Their second of three movies together in the eighties. Do you think the other two films are?
2: Off the top of my head, no, but I know they did a couple. Um, yeah, off the top of my head, I'm not sure. Yeah,
0: Transylvania 6, five thousand. That was the first film that <laughs> they did together in 85. <laughs> a year later is this, The Fly. And then in 89, Earth Girls Are Easy with uh, oh Damon Wayans and, J- and uh, Jim Carrey. Yeah, yeah so this I is the three films that. that they did together. Yep. So.
2: I don't think I've ever seen Transylvania I, I know what it is I, you know like Same. a spoof movie but I've never seen it
0: I haven't either I'm, I'm, I'm aware of it it's, I've never sat down and watched it before um but yeah this this film can't wait to get into it let's do it right now first time viewings it's, it's just that you see this is actually uh, my, my first time no no, no my first, it's my first
1: time uh since my first time so technically that's my second time and I don't I don't I don't want to suck at it
0: so if I'm not up to for me sometime at a very young age in the late 80s um, because I have memories of watching this at my old house Um, so yeah that that there tells you that that dates it to like 88 87 ish like I'd imagine right around the time it first came out on VHS um, someone in this house rented it and you know I had eyes lingering eyes and watched it because there's just, there's a couple of scenes I'm going to point out later on in in the deep dive that, um, that have always stood out since that very young initial viewing. So that's mine. How about you? Yeah.
2: Um, this, like I said, this is a movie that's left an impression on me from a very young age. Uh, the first memory I have, it was on a movie channel like HBO or Showtime or whatnot. And uh, I just turned it on. It was the scene where he goes to the bar. <laughs> so as we'll get into, but uh, that left an impression on me. I just remember watching because I just thought it was a normal movie. It's like, ah, Jeff Goldblum. He looks a little weird. And then <laughs> all of a sudden he's arm wrestling this dude. And I was my fucking jaw just dropped. I was like, holy shit. What is this movie? Like you see the guy's harp snap and I I was glued the rest of the movie. And then like I literally made it my mission uh that day to like, I turned on the TV guide channel. I was like, when is this movie coming back on? And what is this movie? (laughs) So I, uh, I, I turned the TV guide back on, which, you know, for anybody who doesn't remember, there was a TV guide channel back in the day and, uh, saw it was coming on at like one in the morning or something. So I stayed up that night and watched it from beginning to end and just loved it. I was, I just, you know, as a young horror fan, I just loved all the effects. That's what really drew me in. Uh, but what's always kept me coming back is all the other layers with the love story and, mm-hmm. um, you know, the science and just, you know, just the, the headier terms about science and man and nature and things like that. So, yeah, like I said, it just works on so many levels. It's like you said, it has it all like if for the gore hounds that love the body horror stuff and the and the special effects. You got that for people who like the acting and the love story. You got that. It's just got everything in here but yeah that's what drew me in the arm wrestling scene that that's what left an impression that'll always be the first thing i remember for this movie when i saw it when i was young
0: yeah all right well before we do our deep dive we'll do a live top five
1: rob it's your turn okay i'm feeling kind of basic today top five side ones track ones Janie jones clash from the clash yeah.
0: let's get it on marvin gay from let's get it on Nirvana smells like teen spirit off of Nevermind. Oh, no, Rob, that's not obvious enough. Not at all. How about uh, Point of No Return on Point of No Return?
1: Lewis, so you can uh, get up... Uh, shut uh, up, <laughs> shut up. White light, white heat, Velvet Underground. Okay, that would be on my list. Though not and on mine. Massive attack, no protection. The song is radiation oh. ruling the all right.
0: nation. Honorable mention, I'm bringing back Species into the fold. <laughs> Cause I talked about it. that, brought that up, uh... Uh, You in that goddamn movie? What the fuck was it that I (laughs) it was just recently too? I had it uh, on the list. Uh, Steve John, uh, yeah, Steve Johnson. That's right for uh,
2: Steve Johnson.
0: So yeah, bringing that back into the fold is my honorable mention. But yeah, number five, Hollow Man. This is one of the first movies I thought of when I was thinking of this category. Was you know the ultimate experiment for uh, the military being invisible. Well, what we get in that movie? We got. Thermal, we got uh Kevin Bacon's Dong and and Thermal Vision and uh Elizabeth Shue and a very young Josh Brolin. Haven't seen the film in a bunch of years, but I still like it. Number five, Hollow Man. <laughs>
2: uh, so first, I want to put an honorable mention on there. Uh, and it's not a reflection on the quality of this film, it's just I have another film that's so close to this on my list, I didn't want to put both on. So, my honorable mention I'm going to bring up is From Beyond. Uh, anybody who hasn't seen that film uh, from Brian Yuzna is just an awesome. Me? Uh, obs- oh, you I've, haven't seen it? I've
0: never. That's one of the few Brian Yuzna, uh, Stuart Gordon films of the 80s I've never seen. Um, and I don't know why. Yeah. I've it, never it's seen just, it before.
2: It's just fucking awesome and out there. I mean, it's got Jeffrey Combs with a fucking mm-hmm. dingle hanging off of his head. Barbara Crampton. I mean, it's just so awesome. Like the movie is just so odd and weird, but the effects and just yeah, the plot, everything is just so cool. It's an obscure movie. Uh yeah, it's not like one a ton of people know, but it's similar to another movie I have on my list. So, but I wanted to bring it up. Because I'm a huge fan of that movie, From Beyond. Well, uh, I know.
0: Well, go on, finish up. I'm sorry.
2: No, I was just going to say if you haven't seen it or haven't heard of it, look it up. Uh, if you're into horror, I guarantee you you'll have a good time. Yeah, it, it's it's so interesting. It's just so out there, but so awesome. Well, from Beyond.
0: I was going to say, um, previous guest on the show, a horror aficionado, Sean Clark, he actually has The Resonator. Like the the screen used resonator he got from uh from uh Jeffrey Combs or or so uh, I think it was Jeffrey Combs no that's right he found it in a warehouse and Jeffrey Combs actually saw it and because our friends and like approved of it and was like taken back by it because he hadn't seen it in so long but yeah it was uh, at a friend's like warehouse thing or I don't know something about he told the story on one of his podcasts the thing of two heads that. At first, the guy wasn't selling it, but then he got a phone call sometime later, like, make me an offer. And so, he got his hands on it. See, I know that much about From Beyond, that Sean Clark owns the original Resonator that was in the movie.
2: Oh, okay, that's awesome. I had no idea about that. That's so cool. hmm
0: definitely. All um, right. go one.
2: Well, any anyway, hold on uh, real quick. My number five, it, it's a classic. It has to be on my list, and that's Frankenstein. Uh, you know, one of the classic <laughs> Universal Monsters. Oh, of course. Um. Yeah, I mean, Boris Karloff. Uh. You know, one thing, I, I'll bring it up now since I'm talking about it. I think next year on the Hearthon, I want to do uh, some Universal Monster movies. I think it'd be fun to cover some classics, you know. It's funny to you mention that. In there. I,
0: I was. It's funny you mention that because I, I was thinking about The Wolfman the other day, and I was like man universal monsters like two years in a row and i haven't thought of one of those films to do so i think next year we're just gonna knock all like the, the five main ones like dracula invisible man wolfman creature from the black lagoon the mummy just bang 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 we'll also do for our uh, battle frankenstein for obvious reasons like just throw yeah, them in um, the next year's or or, or, a, or a good bit of them maybe not all of them yeah but, uh, we can do,
2: like, Monster Monday or some shit. Yeah, you know? like Just make I like it, like, it. a theme day or something.
0: I like it, yeah. But,
2: but anyway, uh, you know, I'm not a huge, like, I'm not huge into the Universal Monsters. I have, like, a collection on DVD. I've seen um all the big ones. I mean, there's a million and one sequels and spinoffs. Uh, and then you have the Hammer films later on. So, but, uh, you know, I'm just going to bring up the original run of Frankenstein, Boris Karloff. I mean, probably the most iconic, like you said, is Bride of Frankenstein, but... Uh, any of them are just so good, like just if you want to see the history of cinema and just where monsters have come from, it's just so interesting. And it's it's deeper than you would think a movie would be mm-hmm. from back in that time. Oh, period. yeah, it, it just it works on so many levels. And the performance from Boris Karloff, iconic for obvious reasons. I mean, the man was one of the biggest celebrities in Hollywood for a long time. So, yeah, I had to throw it on there. Frankenstein, uh, one of my favorite science experiments gone wrong. And you really, you can't go wrong with any of the original run, in my opinion, from the Universal. Uh, you know, just one that doesn't... They don't get as much love anymore. You know, they tried to bring it back. Tom Cruise fucked it up. So now it's <laughs> that's not happening. So, you know, we're stuck with the old Dude, movies. that but, project
0: yeah. was a lot... There's a lot more wrong with it than just Tom Cruise, all right? <laughs> so... They, 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 but it's they,
2: fucking Tom Cruise it's no a
0: super mummy. I'm not it putting, was never going to work. I'm not I'm not putting the, the sole blame on Tom for that one. I mean, I think Universal really jumped the gun on that. I think the main problem with that is the fact that they were forcing it down our throats. Like, they literally had, like, a cast photo before the first film was even, like, put out. It's like, you guys have monstrous hopes, and, you know, and, and look what happened, you know? First movie couldn't even get it off the ground with Tom Cruise as the star. You know, I don't put that blame on Tom solely. I I do say he's a part of the blame, but not the full blame. But, you know, that's another conversation for another time. Now, two things. One, Team Invisible Man, all the way. That's where I stand. And two, I noticed uh, last year Universal started putting them out um, in my favorite format, the 4K format. And... So they they put them out last year, the uh, four of them, Dracula, Wolfman, uh, I think The Mummy was included, and Invisible Man, together in a four-pack in like a case. You know, I've never really been the biggest fan of these kind of cases just because of my OCD and my collection. I like to have everything, have an individual case and shit like that. So I waited, and this year... Uh, they started last week, I think, or maybe it's this week. They're putting them out individually now, so I gotta get, I gotta work on having them for my collection. Um, but yeah, that's a good, a uh, good addition, Corey. Props, Frankenstein. So number four for me, Malignant. I mean, I, I, I don't know where everywhere else is on this movie. If if people are just still hate it from last year, or if you're like me and still think about it from time to time because. Movie's just fucking awesome, uh. But yeah, number four is definitely malignant. That's just, admittedly, a film I got to go back to. I haven't watched it in a long time. It's, it's it's I think around the holidays, it was the last time I actually sat down and watched it. But uh, it left it definitely left left a lasting impression on me, uh, to the point where it's definitely made my list here as uh one of the one of my favorite at least experiments going wrong. So
2: yeah no that's a good one um my number four is a family classic that uh I always watched as a uh, kid and that's honey I shrunk the kids uh I fucking love honey I shrunk the kids I mean I can't tell you how many times I've seen that movie uh I saw I went to Disney where they had the show and they yes, had the whole I remember honey that I shrunk the kids land the
0: playground.
2: Yeah, the playground where you were like oh. mini and the giant areas. Mm-hmm. I always wanted to ride on an ante. I just always loved the idea of riding on an ant. It was just so cool. <laughs> and I felt so sad when like the scorpion comes and fucks up the uh, ante. It's just, yeah, but it's just an awesome adventure. Like it's a great family movie because kids can Sp- watch speaking it. Speaking of Brian Usna. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I know. I, I completely, now you just brought that up. I completely you didn't realize that? that. Yeah. Yeah, I completely just Mm -hmm. blanked on that until now, yeah. Yeah, man. But um, I just love the fact the kids are in the lead. You know, as a kid, I thought that was awesome. They're on an adventure in their backyard. I mean, what kind of... That's like a total daydream for a kid, so... It's just so awesome. Rick Moranis. Fucking miss you, Mr. Moranis. I wish he still worked. So, uh, just Mm. great film. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. One of the first ones that came to my mind when I thought of this category.
0: That's another good one. Uh, number three for me, Reanimator. Let's just keep this using the conversation going. All right, Stuart Gordon, Brian <laughs> Yuzna, Reanimator. I mean, <laughs> tomato, tomato. I don't know. Uh, pretty much every reason you you listed for from beyond. Um, I'm pretty much gonna just say as well for Reanimator as for why it has made my list because it's a classic. I love Jeffrey Combs, Barbara Crampton. You know, um it's it's just a fucking original now the only thing when i say original everything but the music i know like the whoever i forgot who the composer is for that movie but he like he pretty much stole the fucking psycho theme uh for that movie but you know forgiven it's still a really cool visual uh opening credit sequence but uh yeah reanimator yeah my number
2: three same (laughs) reanimator Uh, that's why I didn't put from beyond, uh, you know, obviously they're different films, but you know, it's from the same type of people, uh, same, same actors, you know, it's just, I don't know. It was too similar to put both on, So I, I decided reanimator for me was, uh, you know, the better film, the one I enjoy more. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jeffrey Combs is one of my favorite actors ever. Like, you know, I love Jeffrey Combs, like from, uh, reanimator, to frighteners. I mean, he's just. Awesome, and he's in top form in this film. I mean, the first time I watched it, I thought it was like a serious horror movie, and I'm like, "What am I watching?" But I enjoyed it. (laughs) I mean, that's your first mistake. Yeah, I was like, "What is this?" And then there's like the head given head scene. Yeah, everybody knows about that. Oh yeah. So, but but just the effects and just such a different type of horror movie. One I wasn't used to seeing back then, but one that definitely opened my horizons, and I had a good time. So yeah, Reanimator easily. had to make number
0: 3. Uh number 2, Frankenstein. <laughs> like yeah. Sweet. Yeah, uh, you know, cuz it's Frankenstein and it's a classic and you pretty much listed all the the reasons that are good enough to list, so I won't trouble anyone listening to them all again and uh pass it on to you.
2: Yep, my well, number 2 is the film we're about to talk about, The Fly. Uh Interesting. Yeah, you know, like I said. Yeah, the, the, it was uh one of the top science experiments gone wrong awesome movie so we'll get into all that soon Mm -hmm. but yeah there was one uh movie franchise that kind of topped it out and i'm very curious to
0: know what it is and hopefully i'll know soon enough because my number one is the fly um this is a fucking masterpiece so nothing's gonna beat it so that's why what is your number one i'm very curious
2: my number one is Matt Reeves. Well, wait a minute. He didn't do Rise, I guess. But um, Rise of the Planet of the Apes and the Planet of the Apes series. Okay. I fucking love Duh. that series.
0: Okay. Well. starts
2: out. Yeah.
0: Obviously, I wasn't even thinking about those movies. Otherwise, I would have made my list. But good one. Really good one. Holy <laughs> shit. Go. Well,
2: the whole first movie is a science experiment. So, that's why uh, yeah, I put yeah, I know. on there. I,
0: you know, the funny thing is, I was I had horror in the back of my head for this category for selfish reasons, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> that's okay, though. I'm I'm, I'm. I'm. That's a really good one, Corey. So.
2: Yeah. So, Rise of the Planet of the Apes. I remember that was one. I wasn't excited about it. just looked like a big summer blockbuster cashing in on, obviously, the Planet of the Apes franchise, which I was always a fan. I, I always loved Charlton Heston in the original. And I even liked the campy sequels of Roddy McDowell. I mean, who doesn't? You know, as any fan of sci-fi, who who doesn't love those movies i had the set so you know i was but i wasn't super excited i was like ah eh, this just looks like a big dumb summer blockbuster but you watch it and that movie just has so much heart like franco's great in it obviously andy circus gives an oscar worthy performance as caesar uh i mean it's like how do you not love the movie the effects you feel are next caesar's level caesar's more human yeah the effects are next level but how do you not Like, how do you not love a movie that makes you love Caesar, a chimpanzee, more than you love most people? (laughs) It's just like it's a testament to that film. And the sequels are equally as great. uh, But obviously, the first one is really the science experiment gone wrong that ends up wiping out pretty much most of humanity, unfortunately. (laughs) So uh, but yeah, I love Rise of Planet of the Apes. And I love that trilogy. I mean, it just to me, it's like one of my favorite trilogies of all time. So. I had to put it on the list. And the other one I thought about, I guess you didn't think about because you said horror was Jurassic Park. But I just hate that franchise, a sequel so much. <laughs> I couldn't, I didn't put it on my list. If it was just the first two, I would put it on there. But the rest of them, I don't really like that much. So yeah, I thought about that too. But I was—I thought about putting in honorable mentions. But honestly, I disliked the last one so much that I was like, yeah, I'm not going to put it on there. But I wasn't just strictly thinking about horror. I guess that's um. The lost in translation part i was just thinking of any movie so yeah. that's why my list is kind of varied up a little mm, bit it's all
0: right it's it's nothing wrong with that so all right well let's talk about the fly All right, so while working at 20th Century Fox, it was Scott Rudin's suggestion to Stuart Cornfeld that they hire David Cronenberg as the director. Cornfeld agreed, and after get this, Mel Brooks of all people had written an eloquent letter to the bosses at Fox they agreed. Cronenberg's asking salary at the time was $750,000. Brooks, Cornfeld and Fox countered with an offer of a million which sealed the deal. So, initially, David Cronenberg turned down the film because of scheduling conflicts with the shooting of Total Recall for Dino De Laurentiis. The producers that hired Robert Bierman, unfortunately, uh, I'm sorry, the producers then hired Robert Bierman, unfortunately. Bierman experienced a uh, terrible uh, family tragedy just prior to the beginning of production and decided he couldn't make such a dark film. About the same time, Cronenberg realized that he and De Laurentiis were not seeing eye to eye on Total Recall, and he backed out, leaving him free to direct this film. Bierman has since stated that he has never seen the film, as it brings back bad memories, and he does not want his own vision. He does not want his own vision of it compromised. In a 1987 interview on Sinister Image, Vincent Price, the star of the original version of The Fly, revealed that when this remake was released. Star Jeff Goldblum wrote him a letter saying, I hope you like it as much as I liked yours. Price was touched by the letter. He composed a reply and went to see the film, which he described as wonderful right up to a certain point. It went a little too far. <laughs> All right, so let's bring this back to Mel Brooks. He didn't want people to know he was a producer for the film because he thought that people wouldn't take it serious, seriously if they knew that he was involved. When people did find out, he decided to make the most of it by handing out uh, <laughs> deli boppers at the premiere. So, yeah, comedian Mel Brooks, you heard that correctly. He is an executive producer of this movie. Did you know this?
2: No, I didn't know that, but honestly, what he said makes sense, because if I heard Mel Brooks, that's, I would think of a comedy, too. <laughs> so okay. So, it makes sense why he wouldn't want his name involved.
0: Yeah, his company, Brooks Films, was uh, one of the production companies involved in this movie. Uh, he pretty much was the the, the lead and, and getting this thing you know off the ground um, what I'm really surprised at is see of course I'm referencing my Scream Factory version or disc of the fly that came in the box set that was released a couple of years ago and they were actually able to get Mel Brooks to sit down with them for an interview to talk about the fly and it's a special feature on the Screen Factory disc which blows my mind um and of course you know he talks about you know he knows this person and that person and that's uh, it's pretty much a favor he did you know because it's not really his forte but uh I mean he harking back and liking it so much that he stuck around to produce the second film so he's involved in that as well but yeah Mel Brooks is involved in the, F- the Fly franchise um Pretty crazy. Uh, Although his script was extensively rewritten, Charles Edward Pogue still receives on-screen credit for the screenplay. David Cronenberg demanded that Pogue receive credit, claiming that he would would have never known how to write the script if not for Pogue's version. Cronenberg was surprised when the film was seen by some critics as a cultural metaphor for AIDS since he originally intended the film to be a more general analogy for disease itself. Terminal conditions like cancer, uh, and more specifically, the aging process. I can see that. Um, Cronenberg met with some opposition when he announced that he wanted to cast Jeff Goldblum in the lead role. The executive at Fox, who was supervising the project, felt that Goldblum was not a bankable star and Chris Wallace felt that his face would be difficult to work with uh, for the makeup process. Both, however, deferred to Cronenberg's judgment. Cronenberg himself later had reservations when Goldblum suggested Gina Davis, his girlfriend at the time, for the other lead role, as he did not want to have to work with a real-life couple. Cronenberg was convinced after Davis's first reading that she was right for the role, and producer Stuart Kornfeld suggested that they audition more actresses, saying that it's the script that is brilliant. Kornfeld relented after nobody else even came close. So yeah, so far, you know, this is pretty much what you're going to get in the 80s when you get a bunch of people who you were not expecting to come together for a big studio remake of a classic Vincent Price 50s film. Especially when you're going to do it in a modern way. So, you know, you got Chris Wallace involved. Who, prior to this film, was pretty much his big name. His, the, the big movie he was known for before this movie was Gremlins. He did the original Gremlins work. So he's, he's responsible for the creation of those little critters. And, um, yeah, yeah. So, like I said... You get, you get all these people who you would least expect to be involved in a project of this magnitude and you're going to have some kickback, you know? Jeff Goldblum, I can understand the backlash, it reminds me, you know, it, it just happens commonly in Hollywood versus the public, you know, we got it a few years later with Michael Keaton and the Batman role. Um, what else? What else comes to mind? Corey, help me out here. Some big Casting backlashes, trying to think more specifically, like something recent that was announced as an example that was met with like a lot of farce. I mean, I guess when Heath Ledger was announced as Joker about 15 years ago or so, I do remember vaguely some people like scratching their head. (laughs) Maybe that's not the best example.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there there's always a lot. I mean, more recently, uh, Pattinson for Batman. Yeah, that was like.
0: Keeping it with the Batman conversation, I guess. Oddly enough. We're, you know, yeah, that's a good one. I forgot about that. So yeah. And it's like the old saying, don't knock until you try it. So screenwriter Ch- Charles Edward Pogue wrote this first draft of the script. When Cronenberg was hired as director, one condition was that he was able to rewrite the script to his satisfaction. Cronenberg substantially altered the characters and their names, the dialogue, and much of the plot. However, key details from Pogue's script, such as the fusion of man and fly, and details of the metamorphosis, metamorphosis were retained. Although his script was extensively rewritten, Charles still received an on-screen credit. Like I explained, he demanded that, you know... Like I said, if if it weren't for him, Cronenberg wouldn't have been able to uh, achieve this screenplay. So, it was the last film in which Mark Irwin and David Cronenberg collaborated yeah, collaborated with together. Mark Irwin was Cronenberg's DP up until this movie. Well, this was the last. Um he was unable to work on Dead Ringers a year later, which is what, or 2 years later for Cronenberg cuz he was committed to, to uh The Blob. Smart choice. Irwin told Cronenberg, "I wouldn't leave one of your films to work on somebody else's." Cronenberg instead hired Pierre Shasinski and I probably butchered his name, but he's the DP for *Empire Strikes Back*, and used him as he's used him as his cinematographer for every film of his since. Um, Schizitsky. There we go. An opera in two acts based on the film was produced for the stage in 2008. Cronenberg served as director. Howard Shore composed the music, and the lyrics were written by David Henry Wang with whom Cronenberg collaborated with back in 93 on M. Butterfly. It was the last film to have its broadcast premiere on the Fox Television Network. I'm sorry, the first. Let me go back. This was the first theatrical film to have its broadcast premiere on the Fox Television Network. And finally, according to Chris Wallace, Rick Baker had once told him that when you would read a, when you would read a Cronenberg script... It was a challenge to try and figure out what effects would actually be pulled off and what effects couldn't. Wallace tells us, I don't remember any effects we didn't attempt. There was a lot cut from the film, naturally, as that's the nature of practical creature effects. There's an entire stage of the makeup that didn't make it into the movie. We're going to get into that in a little bit. So into the film itself. I love it when we get to hear the production company's actual music prior to the film beginning much like paramount we heard the before pet cemetery for the fly we get to hear that old school fox theme <speaking in Spanish> <speaking in Spanish> uh yeah my first thought every time i start the fly is wow howard shores massive orchestral score is so loud and commanding it it it's you know it, it's hard to put my finger on how to describe it because it's so good Howard Shore's music is like a character in this movie um it's 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 amazing w- what his score can do you know to like make you feel and shit like that like it, what it does for like the emotion watching stuff like this like who would have thought a creature feature like this you, you'd get so intertwined with it and and a lot of that has to do with the music. You know, it's it's not something you often feel or, or think about.
2: You know, it's funny. The music, I mean, it's fine in the movie, but it never really stood out to me. No. It's not like, I'm like, oh, like the music. Really? Like, I mean, it's good.
0: Okay. yeah, All right. Um, I mean, Howard Shore, been doing music for Cronenberg for eons, uh, as far back as... Phew, however long David Cronenberg's been doing movies? Scanners before that, like, I like the the Shivers, the Brood, that those kind of films. And he even did the music for uh, his latest film, Crimes of the Future. Um, actually, let me double check that. Let me see Howard Shore's first film that he did with Cronenberg because no, The Brood. Okay, I'll... The Brood was the first film that him and uh Shore collaborated on together. Um. alright that's kind of surprising because I thought the uh, school would have had more of an effect but you know to each their own so Bartok Science Industries meet the press event that we're at that's what opens up the film we get the well first off Howard Shore's music is set to the opening credits there's like sort of a thermal vision of a crowd but it's not really thermal it's like a red and blue silhouette that fades into the actual shot of the crowd when the credits finish up Um, and yeah, we're at this meet the press event and as soon as the film begins, it's Jeff Goldblum talking to Gina Davis, him basically showing off his genius as well as, you know, flirting with her in a sense. He's just being Goldblum, you know, he's had that, that (laughs) he's got that Goldblum charm for as far back as I can remember. You know, he's pretty much gloating to her about all of his fucking successes. Yeah, it's funny
2: because, you know, like you said, the studio didn't want Goldblum because, you know, he's not the traditional leading man in Hollywood. But I mean, you have a scientist here like I don't know. I think he's perfect for the role. I mean, I can't imagine somebody else playing this role. I mean, I'm sure somebody could. But uh, I think Goldblum, just because he has like no, he has like that physical charisma. He's not a complete nerd but he's also got that intellectual property about him and just that weirdness. So it it all works together so well uh, in the role. And I just want to mention something. It's funny that the movie opens, we're at a party, and basically these two are just talking to each other and then leave. Like, you're just isolated from the party. Mm -hmm. I don't know, it's just interesting to me like how they're both there, but then they're not really there, and then they just end up leaving and going to doing their own thing.
0: Because this film really only centers around four people, if you include the baboon. You've got Stathis, you've, <laughs> you've got the baboon, and you've got these two, uh, Veronica and Seth. That's pretty much it. And Tawny at the end. Tawny, okay, tawny, okay, I, I'm, okay so, so you've got some secondary characters, but they're only in it for, like, a scene, and that's pretty much it. Okay, Tawny's case, two scenes. And then, of course, you've got yeah. the, the, the quick cameo from Cornerburg as the gynecologist, as well as the doctor that Stathis takes her to go see. So you've got some secondary characters, but primarily, primarily and Up in the front, you've got Veronica, Seth, Stathis, and the monkey. That's pretty much what your focus is on this movie. So it's, it comes Shock- to no surprise. <laughs> You're getting ahead of myself. You're getting ahead of things, God damn it! I was going to bring up Shakma. <laughs> um, yeah. But it's... That, that's kind of the reason why. And th- let's face it. This is a no-nonsense movie. It gets to the point quick and easy. I mean, the fucking thing opens up on their conversation, literally, in that sense. So, because um, it's, it's, it opens with him saying, what am I working on? I'm working on something that will change the world and human life as we know it. It's, it's him gloating to her. That's the opening line. He wastes no time with getting down to business. He chooses to start his film with Goldblum picking up Gina Davis. I mean, he guys are back at his place and it hasn't even been five minutes since we heard the damn Fox theme. So, the name Brundle, because his name is Seth Brundle, came from Formula One racer Martin Brundle. Cronenberg generally takes the names of his characters from the world of motor racing, as he is an uh, enthusiast. He also notes that this is interesting, considering Seth Brundle suffers from motion sickness, one of the reasons why he invented the telepods. Back at the studio apartment slash warehouse lab, after a round of car sickness from Seth, he, again, tries to woo-woo over with his fucking charm, that piano charm that he has,
1: Listen, uh, maybe this is a bad idea. Well, it's too late. You've already seen them. Can't let you leave here alive. I haven't seen anything. Those. designer phone booths very cute hey i bet you have a really neat jukebox in here too someplace huh? over there maybe? no no this is the this is the prototype of those it's the first one i had made it uh works but it's clunky
0: which is really him playing the piano it was his idea for the character wanting to be like Cary Grant in the Philadelphia story. Goldblum now plays piano in his own jazz band. The Mildred Snitzer Orchestra. Um, the designs that are telepods were inspired by the engine cylinder of Cronenberg's Ducati 450 Desmo. I'm not even a car guy, and I was like, okay, it makes sense. Engine cylinder, the telepods, all right.
2: Well, Ducati's a motorcycle. Talking about a
0: motorcycle. See, I know nothing about cars. Like I said. <laughs> <laughs> so, um he needs something personal to use as a demonstration. So she removes one of her stockings. She doesn't wear jewelry, she says. And then he places it into the pod, hits the little button, activates the pods, voice recognition, secret password. Successful teleportation from the stock from one pod to the other. Um yeah. Attention to small details. When Veronica briefly leans into the pod to pick her stocking up, I just want to acknowledge the incredible sound design of this thing. Like, you really feel like you're inside the pod with her for those brief few seconds as she's leaning in to pick up the stocking. And I just wanted to mention that because it really stood out to me watching it this time.
2: Yeah, and uh, real quick, I just want to talk about the pods themselves. I love the design. It has like that 80s retro feel. It has the science fiction meal because it's like black on the outside and glowing white on the inside and just the way the doors pop and you see the little lock thing and the fog. I mean, it's done very well. Like, they look like real pieces of machine, Uh, you know. Like, they look like something a scientist would actually make back in the 80s. And I love the old school computer. Like, it all just works so well here. It's just like that throwback 80s technology.
0: Is it fair to say that the design of the pods themselves... Are scary, like they add to the horror element. There's just something about oh, yeah. them that are just like you just look at it and like it just oozes fucking bad news. Like these, these fucking things are trouble. Like get them out you could of pick here. That,
2: you could, yeah, you could pick those up and put them in Dr. Frankenstein's lab and it wouldn't look out of place at all. Yeah. Like it wouldn't, it, it would look right at home.
0: Yeah, there's just something scary and effective about those pies. I don't know what it is, but yeah, it definitely works. So Veronica's perplexed at this discovery while Seth explains the science of it. Since she's a journalist she secretly presses record on her tape recorder when she sits down to hear him go in the details of the experiment. Bartok finances the project and they leave him alone while he does his work. Basically is the gist of it. She has him, she uh this little beep sound goes off and she it's like a reminder for her to swap out the tape so she swaps it to the other side and he freaks out a little bit at the reveal that she's going to do an article for Particle Magazine on this. He doesn't want this thing getting out, but she bounces, leaving him her stocking, and she just, with a quickness, takes this tape to her former boss or her boss slash former lover, Sethis Borins. Sethis Borins, who doesn't want to run the story because he suspects that Seth is being a con artist. Speaking of, Seth shows up behind her. He followed her there apparently and he leaves them alone. It's kind of weird. You know, he just, just, he's trying to get with her. And then this guy just kind of like intrudes. And instead of just being like, who the fuck are you? What the fuck are you doing here? Security or try and manhandle them yourself. You just say, Oh, here's your Prince Charming. I'm going to leave you two alone in my office. (laughs) It's kind of out of place a little bit, you know, but whatever. Yeah, I digress. Um, he tells her he's come to say one magic word to her. Cheeseburger. So, during his audition, John Goetz recalls having a terrible migraine the entire time. And then, once he got the role and was filming, it's death this is his first scene where he, him and her discuss the tape here. Cronenberg asked if he could have the headache again. <laughs> this is why Goetz has the fingers on his head throughout much of this scene, especially during the line. He's conning you. So, um uh, cut this out and back to that a little bit um I don't know just something funny about that just him having this migraine it's something about the way Cornerberg says hey remember that headache you had that really terrible migraine that probably made, probably made you like deathly sick you know during the process can you bring that back kind of one of the reasons why I hired you <laughs> I don't know
2: can you bang your head into the table please <laughs>
0: I know uh, Veronica goes back to her apartment where, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I, I skipped the part. We cut to them having lunch together, Seth and Veronica, and he tells her this, if this information gets out, then it can kill him, and then he tells her he's only able to teleport inanimate objects perfectly, but not live tissue. So, he can do it- Sort of successfully, I, I don't know. Um, Veronica goes back to her apartment where Stathis is taking the liberty of using her own her shower. So, yeah, it's <laughs> just something weird about this whole thing. With like, she goes back home and like he's just there using her shower. Like, but he was okay with letting her and this be alone. But <laughs> I don't know. He's using the he used this the, whole yeah go.
2: No, this whole relationship is just weird. Which, obviously, it can get weird when you have, you know, a workplace relationship. But, you know, watching this, the whole John Getz character in this film is kind of weird because he kind of comes off as, like, the antagonist at the beginning. Like, he's kind of a jerk, and he's trying to break him up. And at the end, he turns out, you know, as we'll get into, he turns out to be kind of the hero. So, it is kind of funny in this movie. His character is very uneven. Uh,
0: Well, I haven't known about that, that, actually, when we get to it towards the end, but... You know, it's funny, because this is John Getz, and he's pretty much known for, this is all he plays, is like, you know, sleazy scumbags, you know, see Blood Simple, see Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, Uh, see this, Uh, I'm sure I'm leaving a bunch, uh, see Men at Work, you know, that's four for you, but um, I I think the only film where he plays a a reasonable guy, well, not so much reasonable, he's a fucking lawyer in it, Is the social network, which was the first time we brought him up on this podcast, but
2: blood simple,
0: blood simple. Yeah, I said that. He's um. Oh, you did. Yeah, he's a fucking shady, you know, scumbag in pretty much every role he he takes. But there is something different and unique about this role that, in the end, he gets to be the hero for a change. Something that we're not used to seeing with him. But we'll we'll get more into it uh, towards the end. Uh, I just wanted to comment on this relationship because you know. Whereas as bizarre as that is, uh, it's your typical, you know. Whether these two were an actual couple or not remains, uh, whatever. The fact is, you know, he still has a thing for, or he's a womanizer, and this is just his 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 play or whatever, his game. Regardless, um, you know, she kicks him out, um. He says he'll oh, keep it. That's right, she asked for his key, or for the key back, and he says he'll oh, keep it for old time's sake.
1: How did you get in? I have a key, you remember? You gave it to me. I know I should have changed the lock. I knew you wouldn't. Yeah? Yeah. That's because, unconsciously, you still want me to come back. Move in again. No, that's because, very consciously, I'm lazy and disorganized. Your new playmate's an interesting guy. What playmate? The nightclub act. Run. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, I was wrong, he's really quite brilliant. He was the leader of the F-3-2 team. Remember that? An inch away from the Nobel Prize for Physics. He was only 20 at the time. Um, I don't even think I'm going to do Brundle. I'm still considering the Psychology Today gig. That's not like you. Are you getting out or am I? I'll go. I have to put this issue to bed. you want me to come back later and tuck you in? No. Key. I'll keep it.
0: For old times' sake. Nothing creepy about that. Time to change the locks, Veronica. So, she documents Seth's latest attempt to teleport a living organism. She's, like, sitting there holding the big-ass, like, boombox camcorder over her shoulder. And, uh, fucking this bamboo, Typhoon the Baboon. As you can imagine, doesn't go very well for our (laughs) friend Typhoon here. He's literally turned inside out. Um...
2: Oh uh, yeah, the effect is great. Like just the reveal too, because you see like a little bloody stump hit the um, window in the pod. It's so disgusting. So, yeah.
0: It's like oh god, and the realism. So moving. Yeah, it's like yeah. jittering and ugh, I feel for and
2: it. And I, I'm just curious. Like, where does he keep these baboons? Like, I know Stop. he's in a big warehouse. Stop, but dude!
0: Get into my fucking notes. I had a note for that later on. Like, oh my god. That's funny as shit, dude. Great minds think alike. Is he like,
2: is he like, go next door into the Shockma set, and he's like, let me borrow one of your baboons, and they're like, all right, I'll we'll transport it.
0: Yeah, it's it's baboons us, of course. Everyone knows that.
2: I mean, like, it's it, like he's creating a transporter. It's like, does he had these baboons for a while? Because he has a relationship with them. So, like, has he had them for like a long time? He's like, all right, I'm gonna transport baboons, like. <laughs> Let me just get a baboon for a while because, you know, it, it, them bitches are big. Like, they're not easy to keep. Not like a little uh, lab rat, you know?
0: No, not at all. I mean, where the fuck's he find them? I don't know. I, I guess it was a sale at the lo- the local pet shop at the time. I have no idea because baboons are very much wild animals, not actors. They're, like, pretty much impossible to train. Uh, I know they had – so here's my note here I'm on this, on the subject – Visual effects supervisor Hoyt Yeatman said in a special, special features documentary that Typhoon was once startled by the flashing lights in the telepod and broke the door off of it to get out. The Wrangler on set and Jeff Goldblum, who is 6'4", were the ones who had to keep the primate in check. They are very volatile, volatile and there's no such thing as a tame baboon, Cronenberg said. Jeff because he was much bigger and stronger than the baboon was able to dominate him and the baboon's wrangler said it was a good thing that the baboon formed that relationship otherwise there would have been big trouble on the set with some of the female members of the crew so you know um i, I don't know it's just funny so doc she uh documents Seth's reaction to his latest failed experiment he's like i'm thinking fuck He's distraught and speechless in this moment. Meanwhile, Veronica's trying to stick to this fucking, you know, stick this fucking camera in his face. Um, it's revealed that Seth keeps five of the same suits so that he has a clean one for every day he goes out. Veronica finally comes in to Seth and the, the two make love. And I can't stop noticing the goddamn pullout sofa he sleeps on. Holy shit, dude. The bad back he's got to have on this thing. Sleeping on it every fucking night. Uh, when's the last time you slept on a pull-out sofa?
2: Oh, God. Those things... I can't imagine sleeping on that thing full-time. Like, I, I don't know how the new ones are, but all the old ones, there was always a bar right in the middle of <laughs> The new of ones.
0: Back. Corey, a pull-out sofa is a pull-out yeah. sofa. It's not like they're all going to have, like, the new ones come with, like, deluxe mattresses and shit. It's always going to be a fucking thin-ass mattress, because at the end of the day, it's a pull-out sofa. <laughs>
2: It wasn't even so much a mattress, it was just the way the bar was, because it would fold out and have that bar right in the yeah, middle. Yeah, uh, creaky old that's bar. That's what would bother me. Yeah, so it, yeah, I can't imagine sleeping on that thing all the time, but I mean, I guess he's a scientist type, and I mean, how much does he really sleep probably? He's probably up half the night with his baboons, like, <laughs> doing <laughs> his work on his pods.
0: Hanging out with them overnight. They had their own bedroom and shit. Oh my God! Yeah. Um, experiment time. Seth takes a leftover uncooked steak, cuts it in half, teleports them, cooks them, serves an unteleported steak, serves an unteleported steak to Veronica, followed by a teleported steak from a pod where a baboon was just turned inside out, and she says the first one tastes like a steak, minus the finesse. So. We learn in this scene how privileged she is for wishing her free steak had a little more finesse to it, so there's that. And the teleported steak tastes synthetic, proving the computer gives us its interpretation of what's being teleported instead of reproducing it, and something's getting lost in the translation, and that's the flesh. Keep
1: this an objective opinion. Yes? Well, I could use some finesse, but, um, it tastes like a steak. Oh. Okay. Now try this teleported half. Oh, are you serious? A monkey just came apart in there. Baboon. Heat. Oh. okay huh. mm. tastes funny. Funny how? It tastes, um... Synthetic. Mm-hmm. So, what have we proved? The computer is giving us its interpretation of a steak. It's uh, translating it for us. It's rethinking it rather than reproducing it, and uh, something is getting lost in the translation. Me, I'm lost. The flesh. It should make the computer uh, crazy, I like those old ladies pinching babies. But it doesn't, not yet. I haven't taught the computer to be made crazy by the uh, flesh, the poetry, the steak. So I'm going to start teaching it now.
0: He then realizes he needs to actually educate his computer hard drive, and not that should do the trick. So Veronica leaves, and Stathis follows her, and his particle... Movie, yeah, Particle Mobile. So how douchier can you be than to get the name of your occupation as the license plate for your car? I'm going to start rolling around with a podcast on my license plate. How does that sound?
2: <laughs> yeah, never been a big fan of the personalized license plates in general. So, no. yeah, totally agree.
0: It's a, it's definitely just, I don't know, it just screams douche to me. It's always been that way. Um Well, that's how I've always viewed it. But, hey, to each their own. Who am I to judge? An incredibly jealous staff is confronts Veronica at the thrift store? Like, why is Veronica leaving Seth's place and heading to the thrift store anyway? It's just so bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, Seth and Veronica successfully teleport another baboon. Typhoon lives! But seriously, where the fuck is he finding all these baboons? Um, And yeah, this is where I had my notes that I was talking about earlier about pumping female crew members and shit if it weren't for Goldbloom's manly presence on set. Uh, I think it's time for champagne.
2: <laughs> Goldbloom's like, oh, I'm gonna hump the fan, the women crew here Baboon. <laughs> back, back off. Back off, Baboon. They're
0: mine. Uh, the two celebrate his latest success, and he says he's just gotta send the Baboon to the lab for tests to see if he's really okay, and that could take weeks. So she suggests in the meantime they take a holiday together and go to Florida, someplace warm. Seth's kind of taken back by this newfound romance, as they put it. But uh, yeah, he calls for Chinese food, and Veronica sees a package that slipped that was slipped under his door from Stathis. It's a proof of the magazine cover that he's running that features Seth on it. And she panics a little bit and tells Seth she's got to run out and settle something. Scrape the gum from under her shoe, as she puts it. And yeah, it takes off, leaving him in a confused, jealous state. So she goes to the office and confronts Stathis about the proof, and he calls her. She calls him out when him not even wanting to run the story, and that he called Seth nothing but a con man. If Stathis runs this, and it's all over, basically. That's how this all plays out. That's the gist of it all, underneath all the hoopwa. Uh, meanwhile at the apartment, Seth is drinking heavily and babbling about the he's babbling on to the baboon about Veronica and her old boyfriend. So he just gets all drunk and he starts to like jump to the conclusions. I mean, this is a typical trait in a lot of guys. They just run to their jealousy tendencies. Um even though Veronica's really given him no good reason to even think of her ex or, or give him, you know, reasons to even think about him when she takes off like what if she legitimately had somewhere to go say the thrift store <laughs> or, or whatever uh, I don't know do you have anything to comment on this or, or, or am I just overthinking it
2: I, I think you're overthinking it a little bit it never really bothered me all
0: right, all right. so uh yeah so yeah, he's babbling to the baboon blah 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 and the baboon meanwhile while he's talking to the baboon we see the baboon swatting out a fly so there's your first key at this point Seth's got the liquid courage in him to teleport himself from pod to pod not realizing that that fly that typhoon was swatting around has gotten into the pod as as well and um yeah he's able to teleport himself having no symptoms and feeling himself at first but uh yeah, as we're gonna find out, shit starts to unravel rather quickly.
1: Residue means her old boyfriend, doesn't it? Staff is Barnes is her old boyfriend. From the desk of Staff is Barnes. How about under the desk of Staff is Barnes? She's working for her old boyfriend. Now she runs out late at night to see him. Was this the Ronnie game? I'm catching on. I'm catching on. I didn't mean to kill your brother, but he didn't die in vain, if that's of any comfort. And as the general said, there's nothing I'd ask you to do that I wouldn't do myself, boys. Hey, you're all right. I'm looking at you. I can tell you're okay. What are we waiting for? Let's do it.
0: Comes back and lays down with Seth, who tells her about his success before even being tested, before even testing the baboon out. She says that he could have killed himself, and I'm thinking to myself, he hasn't even tested the goddamn monkey yet, so yeah, he could still have something wrong. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, he straight up asks her if she's with Status, and she shoots that shit down, makes him feel much better about things. He tells her that he at least documented the teleportation for her to see later on in the two kiss. And we get a small wound on his back that this piece of, pla- uh, this sharp piece of equipment, I guess, he lied down on earlier in the film and she had to pull it out of him. Yeah, we see that, that that wound has small fly hairs growing from it. And later that night, we see Seth catch another fly like it was nothing while he's laying down in bed, his sofa bed. So the following morning after the two wake up, Seth starts to display some pretty incredible wire work. I mean athletics. I love it when this fucking he does this this flip over the bars and his feet smack the ceiling. I don't know if that was supposed to happen and he kept it in or what, but it just always makes me chuckle. Like BAM, like his fucking feet smacked that ceiling. Oh shit, it's great. I
2: know, it's so funny like it looks like he's gonna go for the fucking gold here. Like you're gonna see him like a uh, competing in the Olympics.
0: Yeah.
2: Um. And as a kid, the first time watching this, I was like, "Wow, I didn't know Jeff Goldblum could do all this." <laughs> <laughs> as a young kid, I was like, "Wow."
0: Made you a believer. Uh, yeah. no, actually, I don't think it was even wild work. I think uh they they actually had like gymnasts and they just shot around no, his face.
2: A, it was a gymnast. Yeah, they just had him have the same type of hair, shot around his face. Yeah, and Cronenberg uh, uh, shoots it pretty well. I like um, when he has the long shot where you see uh, like the pillars kind of blocking the the pole, so all you see is like uh, the gymnast's legs, like shooting around yeah, and spinning, right. and then the camera kind of spins. Like it's kind of cool looking how he does it.
0: Yeah. Then the uh, the following morning. No, I'm sorry. The, the, I'm sorry. They later on that day they start strolling around this outdoor market and he gets this necklace for her then we see the two sit down for coffee and Seth is going on and on and fucking on like he just injected an entire kilo of blow into his system or something like he's going non-stop adding non-stop spoons of sugar to his coffee
1: so I asked the computer if it had improved me and it said it didn't know what I was talking about and that's made me think very carefully about what I've been feeling and why, and I'm beginning to think... that the sheer process of being taken apart, atom by atom, and put back together again... why, it's like coffee being put through a filter. It's somehow a purifying process. It's purified me. It's cleansed me. And I'll tell you, I think it's gonna allow me to realize... the personal potential I've been neglecting all these years... that I've been uh, obsessively pursuing goal after goal. Do you normally take coffee with your sugar? What? Uh. You know, I I just don't think I've ever given me a chance to be me. But, of course, interestingly, at the exact same moment that I uh, achieved what will probably prove to be my life's work, that's the moment when I started being the real me, finally. So, uh, listen... And not to wax messianic, but uh, it may be true that the synchronicity of those two events might blur the resultant individual effect of either individually. But it is uh, uh, nevertheless also certainly true. I will say now, however, uh, subjectively, that uh, human teleportation, molecular decimation, breakdown, and reformation is inherently purging. It makes the a
0: scene of- was only half scripted when production began. The remainder was r- written the night before, and Jeff Goldblum felt that he could add more to the character. So, yeah, it's pretty much him on the fly off the cuff for uh, essentially half this scene. And I buy into it because I'm just like, the first thing I notice is, holy shit, dude, he is just talking like he's literally like on cocaine right now. It's 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 crazy. He probably was, you know, with it being the 80s, he probably took a little fucking bump before they started rolling the camera. And he just gives off that effect perfectly. Oh, he sounds like uh huh. That's for sure. He definitely fucking has the, the, the look and the, the sound nailed. So back at the apartment, Seth's continuing his rush by having nonstop sex with Veronica, and this is when she now notices those hairs growing from his back, but they've since multiplied and have gotten thicker, and she has to take actual scissors, like shears, to him. Suddenly, he gets the idea that they should be that dynamic duo together, the ultimate couple, as he puts it. Based on this new feeling. And he starts yanking her towards the pod. So she can go through herself. And she like stops and snaps. Saying that she doesn't want to. It scares her. And he tells. I don't blame her. Yeah no, exactly dude. Like <laughs> He wasn't even supposed to fucking go through it. Okay. He only did it because. A he's jealous. And B he was fucked up. Um, that's it. Yeah. And. He tells her that you know. He changed and. That's something, you No, know, she says something. She tells him that he's changed, something went wrong when he went through the pods, and then, while he's standing in the middle of the the the, the room in his tighty whiteies, snaps and calls her a fucking drag before, you know, she, um, he finds someone else to be a part of the, he'll go find someone else to be part of the dynamic duo with, someone who can keep up with him as he's getting dressed and heads out. So, the scene is so intense because it, crescendos until one of them snaps and on top of the tremendous performances by davis and goldblum the theme that a movie is beginning to be heard in the background and it really elevates the scene to a point i literally stood up to have a smoke and i said to myself this is such a fucking masterpiece effort i forgot how amazing this movie is um and goldblum, yeah. goldblum should have at least Seems- been considered for best actor back in 86 he was robbed
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's what I was just going to say is he is really what uh, steals this whole scene. I mean, he like he does it so well where he's not completely off as rocker, but he just has like that animalistic underlay. Like she's, you know, obviously they've been having sex for a long time and she's exhausted and he's just like, let's keep going. And he keeps pushing her like he's just like, let's go, go, go. And then she's like now like and then you know, later with the pod, like, you get the idea, like, he's gonna throw her in there, um, you know, like, that's almost what you kind of think, like, he's just kind of losing control, pretty much, and it's just portrayed so well, like, he's just, you know, not real seeing what's happening here with just how amped up he is, and just how kind of off his rocker he's getting. Right. But, uh, it's done really well, like, because it can't just go from, like, zero to a hundred, like, he can't just be fucking crazy out of nowhere. no. no. Uh, and the subtlety it, it is really, you know, great in the scene. And Goldblum is just, like a, like we said, perfectly. Like, I mean, he's just, like, amped up and he's talking and he's got that Goldblum-isms as he's talking. And, yeah, it's just great. Like, and he just, like, looks fucking sweaty, like, the whole time. Like, pretty much after he goes through the uh, pod, like, the rest of the movie, he's, like, all fucking sweaty. Like, I guess I spray him down every time because he's just, like, <laughs> he just amped up. Like, uh, it, and it just... It, it just makes you off put a little bit and just makes you a little bit uncomfortable as you're watching it. Cause you just think something bad's going to happen right now. Like you just think he's really going to lose it. And he kind of does, but not, not a hundred percent yet, but you think it's going to happen. At least I did.
0: Right. That makes sense. Steph's really looking like he's, he's seen better days. Like his look is starting to take effect at this point. Like he's got, he looks like a straight up junkie, especially in the face. Um,
2: yeah, he's got like that acne looking stuff on his face. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. So he's walking the street, he
2: goes to the bar, huh? He Doesn't have a fucking shirt on. I didn't even realize that at first. He doesn't have a goddamn shirt. He's just got a jacket yeah. on. Yeah, and <laughs> he goes into the bar. Exactly.
0: He's got like this work jacket, or this uh, yeah, this this just overcoat or whatever, um, or sports coat. That's the word I was looking for. And yeah, he he's walking the street at night. Howard Shore's theme is crashing on screen. He approaches a bar, picks up a girl he sees at the table, Tawny. She's absorbing an arm wrestling contest and she's into this guy, um, Marky who's this... All right, so Marky's played by George Javalo, who was a famous Canadian heavyweight boxer who once fought like Ali and and, and Joe Frazier and and people like that. He plays this guy, Marky, that Jeff Goldblum goes up and arm wrestles. Um... It's a hundred bucks, and it's tawny services. So, this scene, yeah, this is the fucking scene. Even I remember growing up when I was when I was a child. This is the scene I took in. It was not necessarily the wrist breaking. It was like the for some reason the white fucking pus or whatever it's coming out that runs down his arm. That had more of an effect than the actual arm snapping. Yeah, I don't know what it was about. It It kind of, like, gave me... It gave off, like, alien vibes. You know, how, like, the androids had the fucking white milk for fucking blood and shit. That's what this reminded me of. So...
2: Yeah, it did. It... It's so weird. I never understood what that white stuff was, but... It's like, Like I said before... I know it is, but I'm just saying, like, I didn't know what the fuck it was. Yeah, exactly.
0: Because it's like, why is that guy bleeding white? You know, it was just weird. So, when... I was like, is he Bishop? <laughs> is it Bishop's brother? <laughs> so when the, uh... Dude, when Marky's arm breaks or wrist, originally it was a more elaborate rig. Then Chris Wallace came up with a simpler approach. A plate was glued to the actor's hand that he had a projection. The snapping bone extending it a couple inches down the arm so that when the actor snapped his hand back, the bone came popping out. Okay, that's a cool effect. Simple, like you said. Simplicity.
2: Yeah, it it... It worked and it made me flinch. And like I said, it's always left an impression. Oh, it that's still has an impression the first thing. Yeah. yeah that that's the first thing I think of when this movie, not anything else. And that's just because it was seared into my brain through childhood. Yes. <laughs> like that's it.
0: Yeah. So it's now Dawn and Seth arrives back at the, his place with Tawny. She's tired of walking the steps. So he picks her up and he runs up these steps. Like it's fucking nothing up to the top, up and up and up back at the apartment he sits her down on this chair right in front of the teleports and he comes out of one and then comes straight up into her legs and he's just getting her to go through. He's getting it all with her kind of like he was doing with Veronica or before. And then just like earlier, he tries to get her to go through, but she says she doesn't want to saying she's afraid. And that sets up the don't be be afraid, be afraid, be very afraid moment. So that, you know, so are we going to breakfast or not? It's your turn.
1: To do what? I want you to go through. No, I don't want to try that. Why not? It'll make you feel sexy. But I already feel sexy. How about a nice alcohol rub? Don't do that. It hurts. Sorry, hon. I didn't know you had the skin of a princess.
0: Sensitive, huh? Okay,
1: okay. That's it. You're going to like it.
0: I don't want to. I'm afraid. Don't be afraid. No.
1: Be afraid. Be very afraid.
2: Yeah, good line.
0: It is yeah. a good line. And it's also the film's tagline. So Tony's seen enough in boogies, thanking Seth for the good time on the way out, and this is when Veronica confronts him about his look and demeanor, saying that she had the hairs from his back tested. And it's not human but from an insect. He screams at her, calling her jealous, saying that he's bringing her down, and throws her out of his apartment after punching a section of his wall out. And I think Gina Davis does a particularly good job showing her emotion in this scene. I genuinely buy into her caring for Seth, even though he treats her like fucking dog shit. It's one of them just oh, yeah. emotional marks that really hits. And Gina Davis, you know, you know, Gina Davis is an actress who I feel has always gotten a bad rap. You know, even I think. I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus here, but I think even back in our last action, our last kiss goodnight episode when I did with Sean, famous episode where I I just <laughs> did a complete 180 in the middle of the whole entire recording. Um, but I think even Sean made a point about her acting just never hitting it for him, and I kind of got that impression from a lot of people. At least that's the general consensus I've I've gathered over the years talking to people about movies and, and whenever she gets brought up. And you know what? Every, for now on, I'm just gonna call them out and just be like, watch The Fly. Rewatch The Fly. That 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 just yeah. proves all the fucking naysayers wrong, because she is amazing in this movie.
2: Yeah, she's great in, like, Beetlejuice. She's great in A League of Their Own. I mean, I don't know. I, I've always liked her. I, You know, is she in some shitty movies? Yeah, but, I mean, you know, what actor isn't that, you know, has been around for that long? One thing a lot of people you know, judge it,
0: her by her later, you know, Career, which was nothing, Cutthroat Island and shit like that. That's kind of like what they base her off of. You know, you make one bomb in your career and you're just shunned forever. You know, Kevin Kevin Costner, look out!
2: But uh real quick though, I just want to say, like, yeah, the on-screen chemistry between Goldblum and Gina Davis is, you know, unmistakable because it's natural. You know, they were dating as I was young. Yeah, as I was younger, I didn't realize they were uh, a couple, but, you know, obviously right. uh, I learned about it later, watching special features and stuff like that. And, yeah, it absolutely works. I mean, honestly, I know why a director wouldn't want to deal with a couple, because if they break up, you are screwed, or if they're arguing, and, you know, obviously they're always going to be on each other's side if they're still together, but it works with the chemistry-wise. I mean, they have, uh, you know, that physical and emotional chemistry. And, you know, you brought up an interesting point uh, with Gina Davis like she's bringing the emotions here so I wanted to ask you because I always got this impression that Gina Davis's character liked Brundle a lot more than he liked her I always got the impression that you know she was like really head over heels in love with him yeah and Brundle was just like yeah you know, this is a girl we're we're you know we're having sex we're having some fun it's fun but I never got the impression like you know he's head over heels. I mean, do you kind of see what I'm saying?
0: Absolutely. And I think what separates that is his change, his transformation. Ever since he goes through the pods, everything changes for him. You know, I mentioned before how she calls him out on it and and such. Uh, and I think had it, let's take the pod equation out of this and let's just focus on Seth and Veronica. And had this has been a genuine relationship that started somewhere, and had he not have went through them pods, take that equation out, I think it would have been to, it would have led to that point where he would have been, like, completely, like, head over heels with her. But, because of this, you know, he, it's like he called her earlier, she's a fucking drag and shit, because he just wants he's very demanding, and he wants, he's just a different person, he's not the same, he's obviously going through this change, and it's affected his emotions and everything, and the way he thinks and speaks and treats people, and so, you know, just to be honest, he treats her like a fucking piece of dog meat, and and for the rest of this movie, and, but to answer your question, like I said, if it hadn't have been for that pod transformation, yeah, I, I do believe that he would have been exactly how you think, him being head over heels in love with her. But because of the situation, obviously, Sheila has more love for him than he has for her. So... Yeah. That's where I am on it. So, I hope that answers your question. Um... So, yeah, he goes to the bathroom mirror and starts pulling his loose teeth out and his fingernails after he squirts some pus from his fingertip. And, yeah, transformation's heading to the next phase. So... Let's break down the transformation, actually. It was broken up into seven distinct stages, with Jeff Jeff Goldblum spending many hours in the makeup chair for his later incarnations. So, stages one and two, subtle, rash-like skin discoloration that leads to facial lesions and sores, with tiny fly hairs dotting Goldblum's face, in addition to the patch of fly hairs growing out of the wound on his back. Stages three and four, A. Piecemeal prosthetics covering Goldblum's face, and later his arms, feet, and torso; wigs with bald spots and crooked prosthetic teeth. Beginning with stage four A, stage four B, which has been which was deleted from the film, was a variant of stage four, only that was seen in the monkey cat scene. We'll get to that, and required Goldblum to wear the first of two full-body uh, foam latex, latex suits as Brundle has stopped wearing clothing at this point. Stage 5, the second full-body suit with more exaggerated dis- disformities, and also required Gollum to wear dis- uh, distorted color, I'm sorry, distorting contact lenses that made one eye look larger than the other. Stage 6, the final quote-unquote Brundle fly creature, referred to as the space bug by the film's crow, depicted by various partial and full-body cable and rod-controlled puppets, Stage 7, another puppet which represented the morally win- injured Brundlefly telepod fusion creature, initially dubbed the Brundle Booth, and later the Brundle Thing by the crew, as seen in the film's final moments. So, several sequences were filmed but cut from the final release, including a sequence where Brundle sends a cat and the surviving baboon through the telepods, resulting in a mutated creature he beats to death with a pipe, a scene where Brundle climbs to the outside of the building as an insect limb emerges from his side and then an alternate ending in which Veronica has another dream of her unborn child, but this time as a baby with beautiful butterfly wings. So the first scene that I mentioned, the famous (laughs) cat cat monkey. I'm
2: glad they cut that shit I didn't
0: really get it. That's a bit too much on the nose for my taste. The infamous cat monkey scene where Brundle fly fuses a cat and then the remaining baboon and then beaten to death with a lead pipe was cut following a Toronto screening. According to producer David Stewart Kornfeld, the audience felt that there was no turning back for Seth and they lost all sympathy for his plight, which caused the rest of the film to not play as well. In Kornfeld's own words, if you beat an animal to death, even a monkey cat, your audience is not going to be interested in your problems anymore. True. Scripted but never filmed was a segment meant to be followed as... It was meant to follow the, the monkey cat scene where a homeless lady screams after interrupting Bundlefly as he's feeding out of an open, open dumpster. Bundlefly seizes the bag lady and disintegrates her face with his vomit drop before he finishes feeding on the woman's corpse. Bundlefly's humanity emerges for a moment, just long enough to contemplate the horror of his subhuman existence. Uh, I know that, that was a lot, but I'm glad I got it all out. And so the process is starting to really take shape at this point. We'll, just, we'll, we'll steer it back to the, the, the first thing I talked about. The stages. So at this point of the film, he's pretty much going into stage three and he's starting to lose things. Fingernails, hair, teeth, um he's looking more and more like I hate to put it this way but a junkie Um, so he's starting to become scared at at, at this point so he turns to his trusty computer system which reveals he teleported with a secondary element when he asks what it is it tells him not Brundle so he has the computer run the sequence which reveals the fly inside the pod with him when he was initially teleported he asks what happened to The Fly and it answers Fusion before we get a weird fade to black as the scene ends. I have questions about Seth Bunlow's mid-80s computer that seems to be more intelligent than even today's standard PC. Like, what the fuck, man? <laughs> like, this thing's from, like, yeah, 30, 40 I... years ago and it's, like, more, like, top of the line and smarter than today's computers. It's like, boy, did we get stiffed.
2: Well, yeah, it's funny there, and also, like, it's funny that he never thought, like, it never occurred to Brundle that there could be two different organic things in the pot at the same time, because you would think, like, if the computer's this smart, he could write it to say, okay, if there's two different DNA sequences, like, don't, it's not gonna work, you know, it's only gonna work with one, like, it's just funny that this never occurred to him, that, like, a fucking bug can fly in there, Yeah. or, um, you know, like, A fucking dog hair on your clothes or you know just whatever like just some other kind of DNA getting mixed in there you know obviously you don't get a movie without it and it's not a major thing but yeah it is kind of funny just the computer how smart it is but then when it comes to something like that it's like hmm what's this over here another DNA yeah let's just put them together it's uh you know it'll work out okay (laughs) you know it just fucking splices them
0: (laughs) yep so, the film fades back in on Veronica at her house, having an old-fashioned cigarette before the phone rings, and Seth tells her for the last four weeks he's been avoiding her because she was right, and he's gotten much, much worse. He begs her to come see him, and now she does, and he's getting around on hand crutches. He's definitely fucking changed at this point. His face is boiled up, and he's wearing a red flannel that's covered in white goo all around it. I mean... It, literally looks like he's been jacking off all over himself for the last four weeks um or at least been using his flannel as like a fucking snot tissue he tells her about the fly fusion and it wrecks her she's completely distraught and says that there must be a way to reverse things unfortunately there's not he kind of just adds to the matter and takes a donut regurgitates on it like a fly and then his ear falls off So, he tells her he's scared and she embraces him before going to status about the situation. But, when his ear falls off, her reaction is genuine. She was not acting at all because she was not expecting that to happen. So, yeah, her reaction was genuine. (laughs) She was genuinely shocked when it was filmed and David Cronenberg kept the take of the reaction in the film. Um... Can you just imagine?
2: Like, ah, oh, shit, I broke it. Yeah, just imagine, like, <laughs> talking to
0: someone on set and their ear falling off. Like, what the fuck? So the fly.
2: Yeah, and, um, real quick, yeah. I just, before we jump off the scene, I just want to say, it's funny how, uh, you know, it is very much like the stages of grief here for Goldblum. So, like, you know, in one scene earlier, he's like, oh, I feel great, I'm pure, this is awesome. And then even when he's transforming, he's like, nothing's wrong. I'm feeling awesome. And then now obviously he's like, I'm all fucked up. This is terrible. I'm scared. Uh, And then later he kind of switches back. He's like, ah, this is what I'm supposed to be. So it is kind of like, you know, the film's allegory to sickness and the different stages you go through or anybody would go through with accepting something like that and living with it. It's just interesting because it's very realistic. He goes back and forth. He loves it. He hates it. He's scared. He's not scared. You know, it's just, that's how the human condition is, and that's how the stages of grief and acceptance are. So, yeah, it's just another thing in the movie that um, I think works really well. It'd be kind of odd if the whole time he's like, "This is I'm meant for something bigger, or this is awesome, <laughs> or if he was just scared the whole time. Right, you know, it, of course. It, it makes sense that he kind of goes back and forth.
0: Yeah, exactly. You make a good point about that. Well, um, so in case you were wondering, the flies vomit was made from honey, eggs, and milk, not that... Too many people were, but in case you were. Stathis tells her to show him proof of all this, and he'll come up with something. So she heads back to Seth, and at this point, he's channeling his inner Peter Parker and crawling all over the walls, feeling better about his situation as he becomes what he calls Bundlefly. And I have in my notes, we call this stage Acceptance. So yeah, he's completely, his demeanor's changed, now he's accepted things, and he's happier with himself, it seems, at least. Uh, but he has himself, he has a record himself explaining how he eats and demonstrates the donut shit, again, off screen. We never see it, it sucks. And the, the screen transitions to Stathis' television, as he's watching this event occur. And this is when Veronica comes running into Stathis' place in tears, revealing to him that she's pregnant with Seth's baby, but doesn't know what to do. What
1: is it? I'm pregnant. Oh, no. Oh, no. I'm pregnant with Seth's baby.
0: So Stathis takes her to his gynecologist for an abortion, played by David Cronenberg himself, And during the procedure, it's revealed that there's more inside that needs to be pushed out, and she screams out as the gynecologist pulls out a large larva from her inside before she wakes up, still pregnant, from what was a horrifying nightmare. And after watching some of his early films, Scorsese, of all people, asked to meet David Cronenberg. And upon meeting him, Scorsese was the one who said he looked like a plastic surgeon, and that inspired him to uh, give himself the cameo as the doctor here. Uh, by this point, Seth's computer doesn't recognize his altered voice, rendering the system useless now. His entire body is now shriveled up and fly-like. He's no longer wearing clothes. Teeth are all coming out. He twitches nonstop. His head's now forming into a fly. <laughs> He's seen better days. Veronica comes to see him, and he tells her that she has to leave before asking her if she's ever heard of insect politics because he... Wants to be the first insect politician who dropped of being a man, but is now an insect.
1: Have you ever heard of insect politics? Neither have I. Insects don't have politics. They're very brutal. No compassion no compromise we can't trust the insect i'd like to become the first insect politician you see i'd like to uh, but oh i'm afraid uh, i don't know what you're trying to say i'm saying saying I'm an insect who dreamt he was a man and loved it. But now the dream is over and the insect is awake. No, sir. I'm saying I'll hurt you this
2: day.
0: Howard Shore's theme crashing into the film as she tearfully leaves him for the final time. And this insect politics speech, okay? Now, this is a weird one. I had to actually look and find out what the fuck this was about. So, it's something that Cronenberg came up with from his days as, as a entomologist. He was fascinated by insect societies and the division of labor, the, the caste structure they in, yet they are very much not human. The exact reason why his head is so enlarged and mishap and, to, and, and and misshaped towards the end is um two large compound fly eyes were supposed to be revealed on the top of his head back when he was going to turn into a more fly monster than a human monster. If you look closely, uh, especially in shots that show the back of his head, you can still see the circular outlines of the fly eyes. Apparently. I haven't seen it for myself, but apparently if you look closely enough, if you can check it out, I didn't have time to check it after uh, I had watched this, so. Um, and yeah, outside, Veronica tells Stathis she wants the abortion now, damn it, now, now, now. She doesn't want the baby inside of her, and she couldn't even tell him about the baby. She, meanwhile, steps on the rooftop, unbeknownst to them, and hears all about the news. So Stathis takes Veronica to his doctor, who's just kind of like, what the fuck are we doing here? It's like 3 a.m. and you got this broad here who wants to get a fucking abortion. <laughs> like, what what? 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 Who? What? Well, okay. What's the story?
1: She's pregnant and she wants to have an abortion. In the middle of the night? We have good reason to think that this child will be deformed. Yeah, but in the middle of the night... Look, Brent. Please. Is it your child? No. It's the... It's the child of a man who is deformed. Listen, I don't mean to interfere, but I detect a certain uncertainty here you know there are tests we can do to determine whether or not I don't want tests tests can't guarantee anything the baby could start off normal and then become I want an abortion I'll do it myself if I have
0: to he demands to know why he's being asked to perform an abortion in the middle of the night and he says that they have good reason to think the child will be deformed but then begs for him to do it now. He then when asked if it's if it's his child, he says it's the child of a man who is deformed. How fucking un-PC can you be? Um the doctor wants to pump the brakes and just run tests first, but he, she says she wants it out now and she'll do it himself. She'll do it herself if she has to. So Veronica's given privacy to change first, and this is when we see Seth come crashing through the the 1980s style brick, the glass bricks on the the wall there, and, um, (laughs) it's like these, like, glass bricks you see, like, gyms and shit from, like, back in the day, and, uh, he takes her away to the rooftop, where he asks her why she would want to kill, uh, Brundle, a baby, that's all that's left to him, and he pleads for her to keep it, but she tearfully tells him that she can't, and he says, too bad, before the film suddenly cuts to Stathis sneaking the Seth's place and discovers the plots for himself. So, Stathis unloads this double barrel shotgun, or he loads it up, and, um, walks over to the computer. Which reveals Seth's plan to merge him and Veronica together to form the ultimate fusion. Even though earlier the computer couldn't recognize his voice, that's like a plot line I've always, or a plot hole I've always noticed about this. It's so like, how does he have this plan formatted when, a couple of scenes ago, he couldn't get his his speech recognition didn't work anymore.
2: Uh, it says manual mode. It says it on. Oh, the it computer. does. It oh, says, I didn't notice that. Uh, yeah. On the computer screen, it says oh. voice recognition not recognized. Uh, manual switched to manual. Mode. Ooh. So he can just use the. Keyboard. I missed that.
0: Good eye, sniper. So according to the script, Stathis goes skeet-shooting, which is why he had a shotgun on him for the film's climax. And...
2: Yeah, I didn't understand that. Yeah, that's... that's I, it's, I really it's, didn't get that that's part. That's why.
0: So, uh, Getz... This is the note that I have about Getz playing the villain. He remarked in an interview once that he took this role because the character was a stereotypical, unlikable 80s yuppie villain, a role he often offered... was offered, but actually became the hero in the end. Um... Seth drops down on Stathis and regurgitates on both his hand and foot, melts them both off, causing him to pass out from the pain. And then when he goes to do it to his head, Veronica stops him and reveals... He reveals the plan to her himself with the help of a third pod, which will be there to make the ultimate family after they all fuse together. And to this point of the film, the most extensive set of makeup that Goldblum has to wear took roughly five hours to apply, all in all. Uh, Wallace says that when every project, there's usually one effect that's a real pain to pull off, and for this project, it was the melting hand. He wasn't thrilled with the end result, but the shot was sped up, and Cronenberg was happy with the end results. Yeah, five hours, man. It looks good enough. It does look good, although you can definitely see him uh, f- a four-minute grip on his hand. Um, that's just the high def, though. That's all. no.
2: Yeah, it it always looked good, the melting, and then also I like when gold um you know, gold blooms like head is down by his leg and it's like that dummy yes. with like the fucking goo coming yeah, out of his mouth. Yeah. It's so cool Logan.
0: Yeah. So five hours to do to pull this shit off, man. I mean back then it was different. Today people get prosthetic makeup work done and they're just sitting in their chair playing on their phones for like the full four, five, six hour process. Eighties, you didn't have any of that you had to sit there and just be there for five hours unless you were Robert England, and then at that point you would just fucking talk the makeup artist heads off cause that man liked the fucking talk um yeah Do you imagine the fuck being in like the early the mid 80s having to spend five hours in a makeup chair with nothing to do
2: now honestly and I'm a little claustrophobic so I would have issues with that as well like them putting stuff on my face and all that and sitting there yeah you're right you know i'm not i'm not really claustrophobic but there is times where i just feel like when i've gone in to like have scans and stuff like that i mean i've definitely felt it so i can't imagine having like masks and stuff put over my face for that period of time but yeah the makeup looks great i mean They did a good job striking a good balance because it still looks like Goldblum most of the time. Right. You know, you can definitely still see him and his performance underneath. And, uh, you know, I love the twitchy eyes Goldblum does the whole time. Like his eyes are awesome in all the makeups, like just the way he moves them around and uh, just the expression on his face. But, yeah, it's easy to make a makeup where it's just a prosthetic and the performance gets lost. But I think they did a good job until the very, very end. Of uh, not losing that humanity and performance uh, from Goldblum. Obviously, at the very end, yeah, it, it's a full-on animatronic and puppet thing. But, uh, yeah, the rest of the time, it's really great uh, you know, in that aspect. Getting the good reactions from Goldblum.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, let's see. So Veronica then accidentally removes Seth's jaw. An effect that apparently took two weeks to film. And this is when the final variation of Bundle comes to life, literally breaking out of the former body of uh, Seth's. He's now a fly creature, and I am fucking all into this makeup effect from Chris Wallace, especially oh, this yeah. transformation right here. God damn. It's like he breaks out of his form- a shawl of his former self.
2: Yeah, it feels real time. Like yes. it, you know, it it feels like you're just watching all these gooey, gory bits just fall off of this thing, and he's just transforming right in front of you. Uh, you know, it it just obviously it doesn't happen like this when they make the movie, but it just feels like they just had it there, and all the shit started falling off, and you're just seeing it in one shot. Like it's done very well, and it, it's just awesome looking.
0: Right. Um. So yeah, Seth's melting eyeballs were created using condoms. The outsides had contact lenses applied to them to match the makeup worn by Goldblum. The insides were filled with KY jelly and pieces of shredded rubber. Fishing line attached from the fake eyes to the back of the prosthetic insect head. As the head expanded, the condoms were torn apart with the KY falling perfectly through the orbital sockets. The only technique that Wallace avoided for this effect were bladder effects, which were later, which were used in Rick Werewolf in London and The Thing to great effect. Wallace didn't go this route because it had already been done in many previous movies and I didn't want yeah. the final transformation to become just w- more of one line of them. Um,
2: Definitely unique. It is unique. To the werewolf yes. transformations. Yes,
0: it is but it's still, you know, it's its own thing at the end of the day. I still love the whole shell breaking out thing. It's 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 so insect like. It's perfect. It's fitting. It just it makes sense. So Fly gets Veronica into her pod and then slowly goes to enter his as Stathis comes to and struggles to fire his shotgun at Veronica's pod before it can start the transformation. And he eventually successfully gets at the f- the the, the blow and it it hits his mark. Brundlefly busts out of the pod before the teleportation can begin but he's unsuccessful in getting out and he's unfortunately teleported to the third pod alone along with all those broken glass and pod pieces and (sighs) why in the hell is this movie bringing me to tears at this point I am literally bawling my eyes out Along with Gina Davis, as the broken bundle fly crawls over to her and begs her to finish him off. It is so tragic and it wrecks me every single time. She blows his head off and collapses in tears as Howard Shore's theme commands the fucking end and it fades to black on a hysterical Veronica. And I'm bawling. I literally sat here for five minutes after the movie ended yesterday on the sofa and I continued to cry. Not just little little weeping holding back. No, I fucking bawled my eyes out for five good minutes yesterday watching this movie. It had brought me to an effect yeah. I had never felt before. I have teared up and choked up at this scene, but I literally fucking sat here and cried like I lost my own fucking animal or something. It was destructive, dude.
2: Yeah, th- I mean, this film is like watching... Uh Somebody die, like I mean, from a disease. I mean, that's exactly what it is. It's, it, it's telling a story from that way. I mean, you feel, at least for me as a viewer, you feel like you're in Gina Davis's shoes, and there's just nothing you can do. Like you're just, feel like you're watching your friend, uh, you know, Brundle Jeff Goldblum, just die right in front of you. And you know, obviously Gina Davis tries to help, but there's really nothing that can be done. I mean, he went into the pod. It is what it is. Like nobody's gonna be able to help him. And it's just tragic watching it unfold. It's much like, uh, you know, anybody who's had a friend that's become terminally ill or just permanently ill, uh, you know, you're just there, but it's a tragedy and there's not much you can do. And I think that's where it evokes that emotion uh, in me. And uh, like you said, in yourself, uh, you know, you like Jeff Goldblum at the beginning. He's a weirdo, but he's likable. He's charismatic and he's trying to uh, create this awesome invention that's going to change everything for everybody. And he makes one bad uh, call one night and then now he's stuck with it and there's no getting out of it. He's sick and that's just the way it's going to go. But yeah, that's just that's what it calls to me. It's just somebody who has cancer or AIDS or something of that sort. Really, uh, I think what Cronenberg said is true. It's really just kind of a general disease type feel for this movie. Not really. I've never saw the AIDS thing as much. It's just to me, just a general like, you know, just a general pro 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 to all diseases, mm-hmm. in my opinion. But that's why it evokes that emotion. I mean, how how do you not feel emotion for that? Like, you know, they were going to be a happy couple and go on a vacation they were planning. And he was going to be this hotshot scientist and save the world. And she was going to be this awesome writer. They got a scoop on the whole deal. And then now this happens. And he's gone. She's broken. She obviously no baby. And then, you know, poor status over there doesn't have a leg or a hand anymore. You know, it's just, or um, a foot or a hand anymore. So it's just, you know, tragedy. I mean, this movie really is just a tragedy at the end. Just perfect ending when uh, he holds the gun up to his head. Just so awesome. It just adds in that extra bit of sympathy and humanity there because, you know, he just wants to be put out of his misery and she euthanizes him. You know, it's just awesome ending. Tearjerker for sure. I can't. No. Oh.
0: Oh yeah. And you know, any film that can have that sort of emotion um, on me or, or, or leave me with that sort of reaction is just an ultimate winner in my book. Um, it's it's very subtle that I cry in a movie. Um, there's only a, a select handful of movies that make me emotional like this. We can now, you know, <laughs> definitely add the fly to that list um, if I hadn't done so before. Because, like I said, there's a difference, I feel, between, like, getting a little choked up at stuff, but then this kind of emotion is a different level because, like, I'm sitting here weeping, like, literally, like, I said, like, I was acting like boomer, my dog had to be put down or something, and it just fucking wrecked me, this entire five-minute sequence. I cried for five more minutes after the film ended, and, yeah, to have that sort of effect on me, um, you're definitely doing something right. And, um... Fiend. That is the end of David Cronenberg's The Fly. This was the, f- the, um, the the first name. I wanted to, one more note here. The first name mentioned in the end credits is Chris Wallace, Inc. as the creator and designer for the Bundlefly makeup. After a screening, the audience cheered upon seeing this first credit. Producer Stuart Kornfeld turned to Wallace and said, You're going to get the Oscar. Kornfeld's production came true when Wallace did, in fact, win the Academy Award for Best Makeup, which was the only nomination and award the film received from the Academy. Wallace claims that this was probably because his name was listed first. And that is David Kornberg's The Fly from 1986, a film that I am so happy we got the cover. And now we get to talk a little bit more about it as we start bringing the categories into the fray. Let's start with the first one and uh, talk a little money. Box office receipts. In the operational funds box, we will deposit 250000 American dollars. You take it out, we put more in. I want receipts. All right. Film was released on August 15th, a day before my second birthday, 1986, from 20th Century Fox. It opened up across eleven 1, hundred and ninety-five screens, coming in at first place at opening weekend, grossing seven million dollars before dropping thirty-two point six percent for its second weekend, still maintaining that first place spot with four point seven million. Total gross worldwide sixty point six million against a budget of about fifteen million. Um you know, box office success, obviously. We got the sequel a couple years later, but um I'm happy that this film, you know, made its, you know, obviously opening weekend, number one, second weekend, carry it over, still maintain that number one spot. I think a week after, or a month after this was released, or either after this came out or before this came out, eventually they were, Fox started running the double feature with this and Aliens together, just to make a little more money for both the studio and these films. Um, I, I I guess that I yeah. I guess because I, I think Aliens came out the month prior to this, so it would be a month before this that Aliens come out, and then when this finally came out, they started doing the double bill. So
2: yeah, and I I'll, I'll say the tele the telepods do kind of look like uh, H R. Geiger creation, so I can see that connection as well. Just like you know, it's a, like a yeah, small they do. one, but they you know the science fiction like with the pods, yeah. And yeah. I can see that being in an Alien movie. Yeah,
0: for sure so alright well then let's talk about uh, what other people thought of the movie since y'all know what we think let's hear what others think and head to the critics corner to see what they had to say about the film has a 92% Rotten Tomatoes score based on 65 reviews with a consensus that says David Cronenberg combines his trademark affinity for gore and horror with strongly developed characters, making The Fly a surprisingly affecting tragedy. It's got a Metascore of 79 out of 100. That's kind of a rarely high number for that. Out of uh, 11 reviews and a CinemaScore of B. Siskel named The Fly as the 10th best film of 1986, he said in his review, as slimy and as grotesque as some of its special effects become, The Fly is a far superior horror film to the top grossing film in America as of late, Aliens. Patrick Goldstein from the LA Times said, what makes The Fly such a stunning piece of obsessive film is, I'm sorry, an obsessive film, I'm sorry, a stunning piece of of obsessive filmmaking is the way Cronenberg deftly allows us to identify with his monstrous creation. Carrie Rickey of the Philadelphia Inquirer gave it a perfect four out of four rating and said, wildly imaginative, gut wrenchingly um, scarifying, and profoundly primal, but not to mention funny, David Cronenberg's The Fly is a film that whacks you in the solar plexus and leaves you gasping. David Kerr of the Chicago Tribune also gave it a 4 out of 4 and said the fly seizes on our ingrained, instinctive horror of sexuality the sense of shame that our fundamental society can't help but teach us and by confirming our worst fears helps us and for the moment to move beyond them. Joe Lipset from Horror Queers, shout out, I'm a big fan of that podcast, Horror Queers, new episodes every Wednesday. Joe said, top tier Cronenberg, this is the start of the, um, all tours shift into accessible mainstream Hollywood fare, but it still maintains his interest in damaged men and weird scientists. And, uh, what surprises, what surprises most is how affecting the love story is. Agreed, on all fronts. You know, this film did not get torn apart the way you would uh, expect for a big-budget horror remake. This got a lot of, uh, uh, of critical love, and um, yeah, that's all. Profoundly loved by all. So, anyway, now that we know what they all think, let's move on to more of what we think and give out our pros and cons. Before I take on any job, I look at it the same way as it takes to make the thing. Positive versus negative. Now, you mix a little bit of this with a little bit of that, and you get a
1: reaction.
0: Alright, pros. Powerhouse performances all around. There's not a single bad performance in this movie. Jaw-dropping makeup effects, literally. Howard Shore scores an all-timer, and finally, that ninety-minute runtime is perfect for this movie. It plays out like a like a three-act play, and it just it works on all levels. So, how about you? What are your pros, uh, Core?
2: Yeah, I mean, my top two pros are kind of interchangeable. Uh, you know, they both make the film, and my first one is like you said, the lead performances, and mainly the chemistry between the two. Because uh, Goldblum and Davis are both great in their own right. Uh, but mixing them together here is just awesome. Like the chemistry is undeniable. I think if you just had a normal um, pair of actors on the film and they didn't have the same quite chemistry, even if they're both good actors, I think it would take away from the movie. So, yeah, just the chemistry and the just the way that they're a couple comes through so well on screen So that's what really sells the love story and brings the heart into the movie. And uh, obviously, that's why everybody uh, loves this movie so much. So, yeah, that's my top pro. Uh, My next one isn't far behind, but the effects. I mean, you know, that's what keeps us horror hounds happy. You know, that's why, uh, you know, it hooked me in initially while watching this. Uh, You know, I love the end creature effects. I love the transformation and body horror. It makes me squirm even today. It all Mm -hmm. still looks great and works you know, when his teeth are falling out to the pus, to the, uh, arm wrestling thing where it's like, I'm watching it just, uh, last night. I'm, uh, rewatching it for the podcast and I know it's coming. I know what it looks like. And I still, uh, I still start to squirm a little bit when it's about to happen with the arm. Like I, to this day, I don't ever, I've never armed wrestled after that because I'm like, <laughs> I'm not having my bone pop out of my arm. Well, it's not every it's day not you're going to arm anyway. wrestle
0: a guy who has like superhuman strength like like Seth does.
2: I don't care. I'm, I'm weak. I ain't taking I don't that risk. Anyway, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I'm not taking the risk. This movie ruined it for me forever. That's right. So, uh, but yeah, all the effects just work so well. Even the melting one, like, it's definitely one of the weaker effects of the film, like you brought up before, but it still looks pretty cool. I mean, I don't know. I I still appreciate it. It's so gross the fact that, you know, Culp's still melting this guy. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, it's just. So nasty. And uh, even like the um, Spider-Man type effects where he's walking on the ceiling. That's done so well. I mean, obviously, you know, they have the
0: the, old rotating room gimmick that they use for like Elm Street and shit like that.
2: It is. It is. But it's still done. Really? It it shot well. It looks good. And, uh, you know, the way the scene ends when he hops off, it just looks so good. It's so seamless because I've seen implementations of that where it's not as seamless, but it's pretty slick here because he hops right off the wall, right into the shot, right into the dialogue. So uh, done extremely well from top to bottom. All the effects, everything uh, just awesome. And then my last pro is the same one as yours. I love 90 minute movies like this. I don't need a ton of bullshit at the beginning. We jump right in. They're talking. You get the idea. He's a scientist. She's a writer. They're uh, starting to fall in love a little bit. You know, I just wish movies uh, nowadays didn't have all this bloat. And, you know, sometimes it works out to a movie's advantage to have a little more backstory. Sometimes it doesn't. But uh, I just know personally for somebody who can't sit down like uh, and just watch two or three hour movies constantly, 90 minutes, I'm in and out, I get the full story Mm -hmm. uh, and I just have a good time. So, yeah, I I give a shout out anytime a movie has a lean runtime and it hits all the right notes. Uh, I definitely want to throw that in there. There's no wasted time in this movie, not a wasted frame. So yeah, I really appreciate that. And that's my last pro. All
0: right. Well, this may or may not come to a surprise to you, but um, I don't have a con and I actually sat and put some, put my mind to it and try to think about something that I really thought was a negative about the movie. And honestly nothing hit that was worth mentioning i mean you know a couple minor gripes nothing worth you know telling you to you know look out for by any means so i mean it, it's rare but it happens i don't have a, i don't have, I have zero cons to give this movie so
2: yeah i mean i have a minor one and that's just john Get's character uh You know, I'm fine if he's unlikable in the movie. That's fine. It's just a little uneven. I don't know. His whole character is a little weird in this movie. I kind of wish they would have ironed him out a little bit more, maybe gave a little bit more um, color to his character, because like you said, with the whole shotgun thing like that was just odd. I'm like, oh, this editor's just got a shotgun for some reason. (laughs) And um, just the way, you know, at the beginning, he's like literally just like begging at her feet and say, Oh, let's get back together. Screw this guy. And you yeah. know, And then at the end, he's like, therefore for the abortion. And he's like the sympathetic figure. Uh, Cause he gets melted by Brundlefly, And then he saves the day at the end with the gun. Uh, I don't know. It's just a little uneven. I'm not saying obviously a character can be multiple things and have an arc, but he just didn't have enough time to kind of get there. So it's, it's slightly uneven. It, it's a little bit, abrupt for me i don't know, like you know I'd maybe just add a few more things with him and i think it would be fine but again very minor i mean like when it's not like anything that would anywhere near uh take away from my experience watching the movie but it's just something i brought up i think his character could be handled a little bit better.
0: all right well then let's see here what we got next we got oh minor cancellations Someone just, someone just got canceled someone just got canceled someone just got canceled i wonder what they did all right who gets canceled by today's cancel culture cory
2: i mean it would obviously be uh brundle uh jeff goldblum's character uh you know animal testing is a no-no uh, you can't test on Shockma. people wouldn't stand for that <laughs> shit uh now i love how they I mean, call it yeah, which anybody who doesn't
0: can listen we, to fewer can cast, we can uh, we
2: ex- several months ago. Yeah, can
0: we take a minute and talk about Shockma? Not talk about it, but like explain the the, the listeners what the fuck Shockma is.
2: <laughs> if, if you
0: don't get the reference, Shockma is a film that came out in 1990, around the time of of this, I guess, like a few years after this, uh, rather. And it's like a killer bamboo of uh, on this college campus where these people, this group of college kids, are spending, like, overnight doing this, like, live-action DNR game or D&D, like, role-playing game. um, Pretty cool, uh, kind of ahead-of-its-time concept. Um, But still, this baboon gets loose throughout the fucking camp or the building and just picks them off one by one and shit. It's got Rodney McDowell, Christopher Atkins from the Blue Lagoon, and uh, Amanda Wiss from uh the original, like, uh, Tina from Elm Street. Is uh in it. So yeah. yeah it's
2: pretty hilarious. And now anytime I see a baboon in a movie, I just think of Shockma. shockma. <laughs> That's just I'm just thinking like the whole time the baboon. Like I wonder if you know, because obviously you never see what happens to the one baboon. Does he go to the shock does like does he become Shockma? Like does he get adopted by Roddy McDowell and go to the fucking school or to the hospital and now he's Shockma? We'll never know, I guess. But yeah, Brundle would get uh, canceled for testing on animals. Like, it's pretty fucked up to put your uh, baboon in there and have no idea what's going (laughs) to happen. Uh, Yeah, it's kind of messed up. A
0: little bit. Um, Okay, so while a serious argument can be made for Seth, obviously in your case, I'm sure a lot of pro-life fans of the film have Veronica pegged as the canceled character character. Due to the fact that she doesn't want to keep her baby, in the end, <laughs> that's where my mind was going yeah. with this category. Um, so yeah, take your pick one one or the other. You can have it either way.
2: What does that say? Yeah. What does that say about us? The fact that this movie in 1986, she's going to get an abortion, and nowadays, depending on what state she'd be in, the doctor'd <sighs> be like, "Nap, sorry, the hideous fucking fly monster's gonna rip out of your stomach in a couple months. Good luck with that." Bye.
0: Yeah, about that. So yeah, we can move on, on that note to a mulligan moment. If you had to do it all over again, would you make the same choices? And for me... Let's see, where's my note here? Yeah, I'd flesh out the character of Seth Brunel just a little more, a tad more. At the end of the day, we don't really know shit about him except for the fact that he's a somewhat of a genius and... He works for a company called Bartok. That's pretty much it. He's the center focus of the film. So I feel it wouldn't hurt to learn a little more of this man's background. That's all I'm saying. How about you, Core?
2: Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Uh, my Mulligan moment is something, it's, it's just a little bit of a plot hole. And I mean, anytime you're dealing with, uh, you know, a big science thing like this, like, you know, teleportation, you're going to have this. But, you know, pretty much in all instances, when something's teleported and something goes wrong, like with the baboon, he's inside out right away. Uh So I guess my question would be is why wouldn't Brundle uh, or Seth, uh, like if he was fused with a fly, wouldn't he just be come out right away just as a fucking fly? Like, wouldn't that realistically the way everything's portrayed happen? Like, he, you know, I guess that part just doesn't make sense to me a little bit. Like if the DNA is already in there and it's uh, all fused with him, he would just be a fly person right away so but obviously it's a movie it's way more effective watching the transformation and it happening slowly as opposed to him just coming out
0: hey man uh, we we gotta have dramatic effect okay
2: yeah yeah but it's still it's like a minor plot thing it's always kind of bothered me uh you know like i said very very minor it's just you know something i don't even really think about watching the movie because any good movie um will iron over plot holes because you're interested in what's going on but just something that I think of afterwards, you know, just you're sitting there and you're like, why didn't he come out like a fucking fly right away? Or why didn't he think to have some kind of failsafe if something goes in there? Like I mentioned earlier, something else gets in the pot, you know, just little, little plot holes that kind of uh, come to my mind. Because, I mean, I think of the uh, original, like the. Um, it's a price version, like, help me, help me, because that's honestly uh, what I thought of when I was like, wouldn't he just come out like a fly right away? <laughs>
0: Yeah, probably. Um, or definitely. Alright, well then, let's go to our finger-licking good moments.
1: It's finger-licking good.
0: Ah, let's see here. Finger-licking good, where we at? Oh, duh, no-brainer here. Bundle flies final transformation, the ending, it gets me every freaking time. I mean, I, I think a lot of listeners saw this answer coming from me after I m- was talking about how much it makes me cry. Um, so yeah, the, that that final fucking 10 minutes just grabs you and just never lets go.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that it's definitely the highlight of the movie. It's what it's building to. It pays off with all the effects. It pays off with the emotion. So yeah, I mean, I I think for probably 90% of people or 95% people percent of people that love this movie, that would be their uh, finger looking good. So it's mine as well, but I'll give a special shout out to the arm wrestling scene just because that's that's the first thing I've ever seen in this movie that left an impression on me. And I literally remember watching it and going down and asking my uh, dad, I was like, does that happen when you arm <laughs> wrestle? Does your arm snap if you do it wrong? And my dad's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Because I don't think he had ever seen the movie. Boy, why are you asking just me these like, questions? What? He's like, what are you watching up there? Because this was like right after I got uh, TV in my room for the first time.
0: <laughs> That's funny. All right. Then, um you can move on got a few more categories and we're done here like this try that
2: with this.
0: all right the fly two let's discuss because I, that's my answer for this plus i feel like this is a good part to kind of you know i know we talked about it at the top of the episode but i really wanted to talk about it here like not go into it or whatnot as much, but just, you know, acknowledge the film's existence and now that we went through the plot of the first film, kind of remind listeners what direction the sequel takes us um, if they were to go down that road and watch that movie. Because, you know, you've got, it, it, first and foremost, right off the bat, the film kind of contradicts the ending of this movie because Veronica gives birth to brundle fly at the end uh at the very beginning of the of the uh, the sequel and that's always kind of the reason an eyebrow to me especially after watching this and that emotion that i just had kind of makes it for nothing and after the second one starts but um as i said at the top of the episode as well i was always a huge defender of this movie and i still am it's just not i i will no longer go and consider this my favorite of the two like I had been doing for the last handful of years because rewatching this movie uh, again uh, recently just reminded me why this is, you know, one of the fucking greatest fucking horror films of our lifetime. And it's just such a tragic love story with, I don't know. I I love this movie so much. I'm the, where are you at on the fly 2 I'm going to pass it on to you now.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I really like the fly too. like I said, I think it's like one of the, as far as like a B movie horror sequel that doesn't have any of the original cast involved. I think it's like one of those best sequels. I mean, usually when you hear of a horror sequel and nobody's coming back to do mm-hmm. it, you know, none of the main cast. When John Getz crew, comes
0: back. He's the only person who comes back. There is John Getz. He comes back for one scene.
2: Yeah. But ideally, you would want either Goldblum or David. Well, obviously, Goldblum well, really couldn't come back. But uh, you would you would want Gina Davis, probably. Well, they
0: brought back. Veronica I mean, back, and she wanted to do it. She wanted to come back for a second film, except um, she did not like the fact that her character was killed off in the opening minutes of the film. Like, she didn't even make it be... <laughs> she doesn't even make it to the opening credits, okay? Um, she literally gives birth. That's how the film opens up, and she dies before the baby, you know, comes out or whatever, or something like that. Um I just remember that the film awkwardly shows like a doctor hold up the baby like he's Jesus Christ himself and then the film fades to black and the credits begin. And uh yeah, that's like I said, it's a more of a special effects overload, the second film is.
2: It's a creature feature.
0: Yeah. I would say through and through. Whereas this has a little more emotion or a lot more emotion and actual story. Because, like I said before, and I'll say it again, this plays out or it acts as a three structured play. And it's one of the uh, many reasons why I love it so much. So, yeah. Um, Yeah. How about you, though? Bring it back on course. What are you going to recommend that's similar to this film?
2: Yeah, but anyway, Fly 2, awesome creature feature, different than the first, but still really good. Right. A lot better than a lot of people give it credit for. Anyway, my choice was tough, because there's a couple movies that go well with it. At first, I was going to pick From Beyond is my pick, but I already talked about that a little bit in the live top five, so I was going to pick out a different film that I didn't talk about, and I think it fits this uh, theme very well, and it's called uh, Altered States. Ah, oh, William um, Hurt. Yeah, William Hurt, directed by Ken Russell. Awesome movie. It came out, uh, I think, in like 1980. 80. It was like a few years before this. And uh, just another movie about a scientist, uh, or in this case, he's a psychologist, and he's um, it's William Hurt's psychologist, and he's doing uh, like mind-altering drugs to kind of expand his mind and, uh, you know, lose reality. But then he ends up turning into some terrible, like, mongoloid creature towards the end of the movie. And it's just such a trippy film. It just it honestly makes you feel like you're tripping too as you're watching it. It's just an awesome movie. I think it's underappreciated nowadays. Um, So, yeah, I'm a huge fan of altered states. Uh, I bring that up anytime I can. So uh, if you're a fan of the fly, you know, it's a little different. It's more mind games and that type of thing. But uh, it fits in with the scientist with the um, whole experiment gone awry. And. You know, obviously, William Hurt is fucking William Hurt. I mean, he's great. And uh, some of the effects in the movie are dated, but charming to watch. So, yeah, Altered Safe. Never heard of it, uh, and you're a horror fan, especially the more cerebral type. Uh, give it a try. It's really good.
0: Yep. All right. Well, then, um, let's mention our MVPs.
1: All right. Now, you might think I'm a little biased. But I take my job as a presenter very seriously. I will show no
2: favoritism. I am here to honor excellence. And the most valuable player is...
0: So I got Jeff Goldblum in here. I mean, it's not even close. Goldblum's fucking best performance, I'd argue, or one of. Maybe it is his best. You know what? Fuck it. This is his best role. Hands down. Bar none. He's the MVP. He's the MVP... For all eternity, for this role, he's just so good. Um, how about you? Why is it Jeff Goldblum?
2: <laughs> whoa, 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 mine's shock. All right, I got I'm picking shock. I like it. Shakma. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the way the baboon gets into the pod and jumps on Jeff Goldblum.
0: Why, why is Tony uh, but- your MVP, Corey? <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: Um. Anyway, yeah. There's really only two answers for this one. And as good as Gina Davis is, and as much as I sympathize with her and relate, and you know, she's really our window into this uh world yeah. in this film. Uh, Goldblum makes the movie. I mean, it's very easy for his. It would be very easy for his performance to go into the level of camp or laughability, and it never goes that way. I always felt uh, sympathy for him. I always felt. Like, it was a very true performance of, like, you know, if somebody was turning into a fly, I mean, he had the looks, like the twitchy eyes, I mean, the way he seemed like he was coked up, whether he actually was or wasn't. I mean, the man definitely seemed like he pounded out some lines and was doing it very well. So, uh, yeah, uh, Jeff Goldblum, from start to finish, he pulls everything off well, from the beginning to the likable but odd scientist to the end to the monster that just kind of fell into uh, being a villain um, through you know, just one minor mistake of his own, you know? So it's just awesome performance from top to bottom. Like you said, it's my favorite bloom performance, uh, out of everything. I think it, it just has such emotional depth and just so many levels. It, it's just great. So yeah, Goldblum's the only answer.
0: All right. Well, Harthon category. <laughs> R.I.P. rest. In. Peace. I mean, not too many death scenes in this movie, but still (laughs) one, there's one death scene, literally one death scene. So I guess we can just chalk this up as a dumb category. (laughs) Uh, uh, Jeff Goldblum, (laughs) Jeff Goldblum. Yes. So which,
2: Hey, uh, you can throw
0: in shock. I was about to say, or or, or the monkey, or the monkey Shockma or, or or Goldblum, but uh, either way, they, they're, they're, Similar deaths done by the same makeup effects. And yeah. So anyway. Yeah.
2: yeah but Goldblum's go Gold, Goldblum's reigns supreme because of the, uh, the emotion Obviously. you feel yeah. and just the little touch, the little touch. Cause you honestly, you could have had it where Gina Davis just points the gun and shoots him. But just a little touch of uh, the creature putting the gun up to its head just uh, adds so much more. So, yeah, definitely. You're to start making me death. cry
0: again. Shut up. All right. Let's do our last category real quick before we get out of here and uh, give this film a final effect treatment.
1: Ow. On a scale of one. Ow. On a scale. On a scale. On a scale of one to ten. On a scale of one to ten. Give me
0: the damn veggies. What do you think? Four and a half stars. Four and a half stars. This was not easy because I really wanted to give this a five-star rating. But it's almost, it's close to perfect, but not quite perfect. It's still a masterpiece in horror cinema. One that features some of the best performances and makeup effects ever. And um, one that I'm going to be going back to, you know, more often than uh, I had before. Just because uh, just this last viewing was such a enjoyable one for me that uh yeah i'm actually looking forward to my next rewatch already so yeah four and a half stars absolutely
2: yeah i mean we already talked about everything so i'll keep mine short but yeah four stars uh like you said a classic uh horror masterpiece as well um you know one of my favorite cronenberg films probably my favorite like i've definitely seen this one more than any of his other work um but you know, I I don't know. I, I really like video drone as well. That that's another one. I know you do but right. I think, yeah. So, but this one is definitely more mainstream, just a little bit more palatable. Uh, and yeah, it's just awesome. I mean, if you haven't seen The Fly, go check it out for all the reasons we've already said—from the performances to the makeup mm-hmm. to just everything. I mean, there's really not much wrong with a film. Like, does you know the Stathis character need to be ironed out a little bit? In my opinion, sure. Could the movie maybe do with maybe 10 more minutes, maybe an extra scene or two? Sure. But nothing major. I mean, it's just such an enjoyable film. And yeah, like you said, just an absolute classic from the 80s. And a good example of why remakes aren't always bad, because to me, this far surpasses the original. I mean, I've seen the original and it's fun in its own right, but a completely different movie. I mean, a a movie where a man with a a, it's a fucking fly with a man's head. Like, I mean, it's just not going to be on the same level, uh, just way to take a concept and just modernize it and just turn it into something fantastic. So yeah, this is everything a remake should be. And, uh, I really appreciate that. So yeah, definitely. If you haven't gotten on it, uh, go check out the fly. What are you waiting? for?
0: <laughs> That's right. All right. Um, well, this episode has been sponsored by raid bug spray. <laughs> This one's too easy. <laughs> As always, this is not a real sponsorship, rather, more of a faux sponsorship. It's a harmless comedy bit and isn't meant to be ever taken seriously. Relax, these are the jokes. All right, that's all, folks. Tis the end of our deep dive on David Cronenberg's The Fly, a film that no doubt gets that full Film Effect seal of approval. One down, many more to follow. Check out our ever going collection of previous episodes on your podcast service of choice or at thefilmeffectpodcast.com. And please like, subscribe, follow whether it's on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, all links in the episode notes. Reach out to us by email at theflameffectpodcast at gmail.com or by messaging us directly on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Ratings and reviews, all feedbacks welcome. Let's get some more reviews out there from our listeners. We want to hear from you guys sincerely. Coming up on the Halloween Marathon to 2 Dead by Pod, it rolls on with a episode on Dr. Giggles from 1992 celebrating the 30th anniversary of another underrated little flick and that uh that's been a few years since my last watch but i've always been a fan i think larry drake's perfect as the character and i'm really looking forward to this discussion cool
2: yeah i'm i'm excited about it too because i have not seen this movie since probably the late 90s early 2000s okay it's been a couple
0: Uh, of years it's been a couple decades then
2: yeah it's I think I rented it on VHS when I was working at the video store. I honestly really think that's the last time I've seen this movie. Uh, It's been so long because it's, uh, you know, as well, I'm sure we'll talk about in the episode, but you just can't get it anywhere. Like you can rent it. That's pretty much it. Like it's not streaming. You can't buy it physically unless you pony up the dough online. So it's just not out there. So it's just one I haven't seen, but I'm looking forward to it. Uh, This is. A lot of people dread this era in horror, but it's what I grew up with, and you know it brings back nostalgia. And you mentioned Larry Drake, so I'm so excited to rewatch it. I'm curious to see what we're gonna think.
0: Yeah, so am I. And um, well, until then, I'm Ed. And I'm Corey, and this has been Halloween Horrorthon Two: Dead by a Pod on the Thumb Effect Podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll be back soon. Take care now. Bye-bye.
2: See you guys.